Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day. Welcome, everybody. Episode 225 of the Galen Trombley Show. Uh, we have quite the setup today, and my guest, um, first time, well, I've met Heather before, Heather Gottlieb and Tom Murphy, and this is being filmed. We haven't filmed a podcast in probably four years. Uh, Brian McKeon? Okay, and I was told Brian got married in a kilt, so we already like him. He's an Irish guy. Uh, but besides that, we're here. Um, Tom and, well, I'm just going to kind of read this, see if I, I have this correct. You are the founder of Sweethearts and Heroes? Yeah, I guess Can so. I say founder? I guess, I guess that's what they call me. Head guy, one of the top top people within the organization. And Heather was the first person that made... I've seen you guys, I've seen stuff on like social media and things like that. And then Heather, we ran into each other um, through a mutual friend at a, a you know, a, a big dinner we had recently and you kind of told me about it. I actually finished the book today. Get out of here. So that was like a little bit of homework I had to kind of cram in, but I got it done. Um, so I'm excited to hear from you guys. And again, I think having listened and kind of watched and, um, you know, a little bit of the research and stuff on you guys, it seems, I'm going to let you describe everything, but... I think the one thing I gather from it is you guys are making a massive impact on a lot of young adults and teachers. And I think that it seems to be kind of your area of expertise, but it seems like most of the stuff that I've watched has been pretty powerful, um, transformative. And, um, you know, like I said, I think we're going to really dive into a lot of this stuff as we go along. But whoever wants to start, how'd you guys, uh, you want to start, Tom? Well, you I got to ask you a question first. Go ahead. Once upon did a time. You read, yeah, once upon a time. <laughs> did you read the epilogue? Um, That's the I, end of the book. Well, I listened to it. So was okay. it on the audio book? It should have been. Okay, then it, yes. Yes. The answer would have been yes. Well, you will know what I'm talking about. And not no, spoil, spoil, no spoiler alert here, but um, the end was a little um, controversial. And what I mean is, and, and maybe you didn't get to it, but... I definitely... Li- I'm just trying to... Which one did you talk about? Because there was... So, Tim, mm-hmm. his status as this janitor. Yes. Nothing ringing a bell. Well, the jan- I mean, the janitor throughout was kind of like the... Uh, kind of, it's almost like the legend of Bagger Vance. He's kind of like the Bagger Vance of the, sh- of the book. It's like Yoda. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he's like, yeah, but like he's kind of giving, sure. he, but he's kind of like mysterious at times. Right. But the very end, you didn't read the end. I did read. I did or, read or it. Or so my memory to, is no, terrible. Listen, no, no, you, you could not forget this part because people get mad at me because of the end of the book. What was the, what was the end? Because I, I swear. I mean, do I, I give I, the, do, I'll ruin it for people that haven't read the book. I, I, I listened to it and I did listen to it this morning. Okay. And I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on, so I just want to. Okay. If you say it, I'm going to be like, yes, obviously. But if you don't want to, you don't want to ruin it. Then, we... well, when we wrote the it book, was after 12th and 13th, 
pillow. Right, right. After okay. after the last pillow. Yep. <laughs> what happens is Tim decides, or, or Bruce decides to go to his house because he disappears. Mm-hmm. Tim disappears. And so he go, decides to go to his house at the end. And he pulls up to his house and, um, yeah. I'm not going to ruin it. You're going to okay. I'm going to go back. You're going to go back. Tell tell me after because I, I, I swear I listened to this. Whole oh, I, be, thing. I believe. And, you. And it, but again, my memory is like all over the place. So I might, I might have listened to yeah, it kid, and then like I just I forgot. Kids get really upset at the end of the book. Adults not so much, but kids are like, oh, I can't believe that. I I say just tear the <laughs> epilogue out and throw it away then. So who who wrote the book? Well, um, is that not known? Because it's not on the. It wasn't on the cover. When yeah, I, we decided not to do that. Okay, you know, there's no like author. There was a there was a a reader of the book, a narrator, but there was no actual author of the book. So I'll make this super quick. So I have been doing seminars on these thirteen pillows. What makes an effective teacher versus effective? Mm-hmm. For years, was doing these seminars on what makes an effective educator, and and that's a great discussion to have. Like. Why, what does that even mean? Where did you get that from? So we had written these chapters and kind of standalone based on our seminars um, and some of the content that we deliver at seminar. Um, Brian was traveling with us and he called me up one day and I'm kind of a C.S. Lewis fan. I like the fictional allegories. Narnia. Yeah, I just like those allegories that, that, that teach lessons that head fake kids and people, right? You, the, the lessons are baked into it, but it's, you know, it's interesting. And so Brian called me one day, this was three years ago or so, and he's like, I got a great idea. He's like, why don't we turn this into a fictional allegory? And at first I was like, um, nah, we need something that's, you know, for teachers to read. But as I got to thinking about it more and more, um, what do you do when you go home at night? You mean read or? Yeah, read? As, a, as, a, as a modern day human. Well, me, I take care of kids until they go to bed, and then I <laughs> spend a little bit of time with my wife and go to bed. Spend I try, a little I bit try of to time read at night, but yes. With your wife on yep. the couch watching Netflix. Like, that's what everybody does. They watch we, a series. We, we uh, Actually, we're big in the t- Ted Lasso's out right now, season okay. three. Yeah. I'm just saying, everybody yeah, yeah. watches a series. Yep. And that's when it hit me, you know, talking to educators all the time, they would say the series that they're watching. Mm-hmm. And so that's when it hit me. I'm like, Brian just hit a jackpot. So he, so I said, yeah, go for it. So Brian starts the work and does a lot of the heavy lifting on the book. But okay. he took a lot of our seminars that we did and our content, and he just, he stole all the stories that we were telling to teachers and okay. wove them into these two characters and, and a bunch of kids. So every page in that book yeah. is a true story. I can take you okay. almost every page and say, oh, that happened at Seaford, Long Island. This happened there. So there's not one piece of fiction in that book, really. It's all so, true. So can I ask Brian? So Brian, you wrote this for the most part? Yeah, like I took the stories that uh, we had written them out, these stories, and basically I just took all the stories and kind of just mishmashed everything together. Um, and I did the majority of the writing. But like the parts. dialogue and the all writing, that? that yes, yes. Okay. That's, and, right. and then I frustrated him beyond belief because he would send me chapters and I would rewrite them and say, no, this has got to fix and that's got to. So we spent, what, a solid process, year at least. working on this book. Okay. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I was gonna say how many how many pages is it? Two hundred? One hundred and eighty? Uh, page count? I'm not sure. Word count? It's like between forty and fifty, I think. It's a it's a pretty sizable book. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Not yeah. I mean, it's not like a pamphlet book. I mean, this was yeah. This obviously took time. Yeah. Um, so who, if you don't mind me asking, did you have? Um, maybe we can direct, I'll direct it at you because you're on the mic. But Brian, yeah. you can you can uh, chime in. So the janitor. Is there someone that you had in mind or yeah. just a fixed, fictitious no. person? So there is an actual person. And then the gym teacher, same thing? Everybody in there is a real person. So, But it was based off a specific person? Yeah. Okay. So my favorite one to talk about is Tim. You know, Tim is mm-hmm. the janitor. and So the, the premise of the story, real quick, and, and when I talk to people about it and I put a copy in their hand and I've given them about 500 copies away to teachers this year, mm-hmm. which has been wonderful. And every school I go to, I bring a handful in, give them away, and I say, hey, let me tell you about this for just one minute. And I say, this is a fictional allegory. Uh, Every page is a true story. It's about a young phys ed teacher. Um, The book is based on uh, a destructive decision, a young man. In real life, his name was Evan. And Evan did the unthinkable in the 11th grade. Mm -hmm. I was in a wrestling room many times with Evan. Couldn't have picked him out of a lineup. He just was one of these invisible kids. You knew those kids in school, mm-hmm. and uh, until he wasn't, and when he did the unthinkable, uh, his phys ed teacher, wrestling coach, is a guy that I know, really questioned what he was doing because he signed up like a lot of phys ed teachers that I've talked to over the last decade. I got into this sport to turn boys into men and men into champions. That's why I got into phys ed because that's what was done to them, mm-hmm. right? And uh, that old school, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. Like, that's just what you did. And after, in the book, book Bruce loses, Alan, in the book his name is Alan, um, he just says, this isn't why I got into teaching. You know, I got into teaching to turn boys into men and men into champions, as I just said. Mm-hmm. And so he decides to throw in the towel. And I think the average lifespan of a teacher today is about seven years. And so he writes his resignation letter and just happens to read it out loud in the gym one more time in the prologue before he hands it in. Mm -hmm. And when he gets done from the shadow steps, a custodian, you know, a retired, you know, educator that um, lost his wife to cancer and just wants to be back around kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he steps out of the shadows and he has the secret. He has the answer. Um, Tim is based on a very good friend of mine named Tim McGowan. And... uh, Tim is one of the neatest people. I had a conference call with him yesterday for over an hour. Brian sat there and listened to our Zoom call. Um, I call him all the time, and um, we've been friends for years. He he built something called Wingman Connect for the U.S. Air Force. Um, he's just a, a brilliant guy when it comes to destructive decisions, when it comes to um, suicidal ideation. And you say, well, where did he get that training? Well, he went to school, but his real training came his first year as a counselor, he inherited a district where they had 15 suicides in 30 months, which doesn't even make sense to the human brain. After 24 months, they had one, which was too many. And if Tim were sitting with us right now and you said, what's the secret, man, of going 15 to one? He would tell you one word, conversations. Young people need to talk about these things. And if you're over the age of 40, your parents probably didn't talk to you about stuff like that. Just, shh, we don't talk about that stuff. Yeah. And uh, so he knows the secret. So he steps from the shadows 
and just tries to have a conversation with this young man. And, uh, and then the book unfolds. And, but the book is about one thing. It's about this feeling of hopelessness. That's what the book is about because that's the journey we have been on for the last 12 or 13 years. The destructive decisions that young people have made have been making have skyrocketed. And of course, maybe the ultimate is suicide. Um, maybe it isn't. Maybe there's worse. I don't know. But, you know, things like addiction and getting into relationships way too young and hurting themselves and other people. I mean, heck, if you really want to go big, and this is a tough thing to say out loud, but I said it when Nicholas Cruz shot up Parkland. Um, most people say he's a monster. Maybe he is. But I can also tell you he's about as hopeless as they come. And then we look at what happened yesterday. And that should make you pause and think, how did that person end up like that? Is it just mental health? You know, to go into a school and to take the life of three nine-year-olds? Is that a mental health issue? Or is that person so damaged? Like, where does that come from? But not, not to get too far off that, but... You know, he's got the answer, steps out of the shadows, knows what this guy's going through because he's been through it, right? He's Yoda. He, 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 he's been through the, the, the trials and the tribulations and he's seen it happen and he knows the secret. And that secret is having conversations with young people. And even if they're not ready to talk about them, they're always ready to listen. And so he does that with our, 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 our good buddy, Bruce. And, um, but it's called The 13 Pillows and... You know, we could talk about why it's pillows versus pillars. And it looks like someone took a crayon and scribbled out the pillars. Yeah. Because everybody, you know, you have the, the 13 laws of pillars of podcasting and 13 pillars of health and wellness. And, you know, we wanted it to be something different. And as an athlete for years, I had a, a sports psychologist, one of the best on planet Earth for years, a guy named Brian Kane. He runs his own podcast. And, and you know, he would, as my coach for years he said you need to take the pillow test every night and you lay your head in a pillow you're going to say one of two things i wish i had or i'm glad i did if you say i wish i had you failed the pillow test or if you have more of those if you say i'm glad i did you passed and uh, it's okay to fail the pillow test you know you might wake wake up or you might be going to bed and say man i wish i had done those extra sprints and i wish i hadn't eaten that whole cheesecake that's okay because you got 86,400 seconds as soon as you wake up to start it over again, right? And hopefully when you hesitate, you're going to put the, do those extra sprints. And, you know, then you lay your head down the pillow that night and you say, man, I'm glad I did. But it doesn't have to be just the physical stuff, you know. Maybe I'm glad I stopped and talked to that kid that was sitting on the curb that I knew something was wrong with. But the last couple times I was too busy. I had to go get my own kids. I had to make dinner. I had to do the bath thing with kids. And I walked by that kid. And uh, that's one of the pillows, which is wilting flowers. A lot of times we just walk by young people that might be struggling. And um, But the last piece I'll say about it, and then we'll shove it over to Heather here because, you know, she's our resident expert. She's outpacing me on the book right now. She's teaching it to young people. But the last piece I like to say for any educators that are listening, especially in the state of New York, uh, every educator in New York State is assessed on their effectiveness. And it's an, it's an assessment called APPR. And every single educator in the state of New York has to be assessed on how effective they are. And I always say I think that's a bunch of hooey. 
And um, the greatest educators, there's a, an educational philosopher named Benjamin Bloom, and he had a couple of different great theories. And one of them, he said, there's three domains of learning, right? And every educator learns this in graduate school, and then you forget about it. But there's the cognitive domain, right? There's the psychomotor that interacts with the world. But Bloom said in order to connect the head to the hands, you had to go through the heart or the affective domain. And all of the great educators in the last, well, I'd say in the last 30 years, but why didn't really get woken up and, you know, until we started doing the work that we're doing. Um, but all the great educators that I've met share these 13 great core uh, values, competencies, whatever you want to call them. But just these 13 pillows, pillars, they share them. And when I find the great ones, all of these things are how they operate when it comes to their profession, when it comes to handling students, when it comes to handling parents or their other co-teachers. It's They all have them. And uh, for years, we've been collecting them and saying, man, pillow number one, it's a marathon, not a sprint. When you're a young educator, um, and I said I was going to land here and turn it over to Heather here, but just to illustrate it, when you're a young educator, you get out of school and you're on fire, you know, and you going to sprint these kids across the finish line, right? You know, you're going to, mm -hmm. um, I got to teach this, I got to teach that, and I got to, whether it's, a, you know, math, English, phys ed, you know, I got to teach these skills. Um, and very quickly, you overlook that most young people, especially today, it's never been harder to be a young person than in the world today. But most young people, you know, a lot of them are in survival mode. And as an educator, my job is to, to teach you, right, this cognitive domain. And I got to get you to be able to do these skills in phys ed, that psychomotor. Like, um, but when someone's in survival mode, <laughs> good luck. That kid's in a marathon. And if you don't treat them that way, number one, you're probably not going to ever connect with them. But number two, um, you're never really going to reach them. You're never going to help them because uh, what that kid's going through it needs time and patience and not someone to say, hey, math is what you need to learn this equation. Okay. <laughs> Where, um, we'll get to you ahead. I get, or either one, but yeah, it's please. probably more a question for Tom. So when... Go go back to the like where did where did this all start? How did you start the program? And you know what was kind of what got you into wanting to do this again? Switching careers and doing stuff and coming into this, um, you know, and again, it's kind of having these conversations and introducing. Um, I don't know if you call it philosophy or however you would explain it to whether it's teachers or students, but like what was the catalyst that got you into this in this field and what made you or what sparked you know, the sweethearts and heroes and, um, you know, I guess kind of just like the the origin story of all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's throw the book part over to Heather because you may have, I may have just tripped a couple things. And the, yeah. the, the the book is a tiny piece of what we do. Okay. It's so an important piece. We'll stay in the book. We'll yeah, just for we'll a minute come, and then yeah, we'll come back and okay. I'll tell you yeah. the story. Um, you mentioned a couple, I think, really important things that, that life is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think for educators, they, they are feeling just as hopeless as the students. Um, I think they, they've in, in a way just lost direction, um, especially over the past few years, especially going through COVID. Um, and that has just shifted every... Yeah, Heather, I don't want to interrupt you, yeah. but before we go, if anyone's listening that is a teacher, I don't know. Did you tell your credentials yet? 
You're, I was going to say, so yeah, I was going to say, tell, tell what you do, because I know you are a teacher. So. Yeah, 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 I just I wanted yeah. A, a context so someone listening can say, oh, shoot, I don't have to listen to Tom. I'm going to listen to Heather because she's way smarter than this meathead. Oh, goodness. Um, I am an educator. I have been teaching um, since I got out of college in 1999. Um, so I've been teaching for just over 20 years, um, typically high school for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I'm a ninth grade educator at Osable Valley High School. Um, and when, when, or I guess, how did you come, like, how'd you figure out or find the book? How'd you find, you know, Tom and, and the whole organization? The Sweethearts and Heroes came to Osable pre-COVID. So a little over a few years ago now, um, they came, they did their presentation. Mm-hmm. I was there in the audience, thought it was amazing. I knew kind of what they were about when they came and, um, Tom's buddy Rick was going to make some visits to classrooms. So mm-hmm. he came to my classroom for a couple of classes and it was really powerful. And the students just kept talking about it. And I, I don't know, I reached out to him, I think. I, I don't know how it started, but got, you know, got in touch with him and started communicating. And that ended up going for like a year. And then he told me about this book that they had written and said, hey, if you want to give it a read. So I gave it a read. And it was a book meant for educators. But I said, I think I'd really like my students to read this book. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay. So I did that for the first time last year and took my students through the entire book. Really powerful stuff. The reflections, the conversations, unlike anything with anything else I'd ever taught before. So it, so the book's geared at teachers, but were you one of the mm-hmm. f- first or the first to introduce the students in the way you did as like a curriculum? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I create a whole curriculum around it. And was that, I mean... Is that eye-opening? I mean, was that ever an intent for it to get that never that ground we, level? Brian and I, we never even talked about students reading this book. It was only meant for teachers. And then Heather read it to her students, and she kept saying, oh, my gosh, you've got to read this. And she would make little assignments, and she'd send me some of the reflections that these students have or had. And, and um, I remember you know, kids were saying things like, why can't more teachers be like Bruce? And listen to kids more. Mm-hmm. And these were things that, like, I talked to educators about, but now it wasn't me preaching, you know, what I think, you know, teachers need to do. It was, you know, if you really listen to kids, uh, they'll tell you what they need. You just got to pay attention. And they see themselves it, in the characters. It's so yeah. powerful, um, whether they see themselves directly or a friend of theirs. But, yeah, the connection that they have with Bruce as we read the story is amazing. They're like, yeah, Tim. Tim is gonna help, you know, Bruce come alive again, and and they notice that Bruce fails, and they like that. They're like, well, at least he's trying. They, all my kids, even, and I'm walking them through the book again this year, and they all say the same thing. Hmm. Well, at least he's trying, and, so and they, they appreciate. And they're that. about 13, 14 years old. Fourteen, yeah. Um, are the are the kids like you said? I I think in a lot of the, a lot of the. Um, you know, like you said, the pages, it's, it's, there's some heavy topics and heavy themes. And, you know, a lot of it, it's not very, um, like you said, it's not a common, you know, dinner table conversation. You're going to have with parents or friends or anything like that, but you start reading it. And I think a lot of us, um, you know, I'm listening to it too, and I'm far removed from high school, but you still look at the idea that you're like, I do remember the invisible kid. I do remember, mm-hmm. um, or even now, and I think we kind of spoke off air, um, you know, I do think it's harder being a kid now with the connectivity with just everybody. You keep, there's nowhere to escape. Like at, at the end of school, we could go home and we were hanging out with our buddies or watching TV with our siblings and friend or um, family, but we didn't have the uh, 
I think AIM was the first intro to it back mm-hmm. in the day when, but you had to be on a computer and like, you know, one of your siblings was on it, you know, you kind of got bumped out, but now you have your phone, so there's no escaping that. It's kind yeah. of, same thing, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, adults, we, we feel it too, or if we're always connected to our phone and when we can like right now, we can disconnect from phones. It's like, okay, this is nice. We're having a conversation, but you feel, you know, um, separated from just that constant, you know, grabbing. So the students, when you introduce this to the students, um, did it, because it's not a normal conversation that we typically see and have, um, but did kids find some like comfort in the fact that like this is written on pages and we're reading it together where there was a connectivity of like, okay, this isn't as, um, you know, uh, I want to say a taboo, but this isn't as crazy to talk about now because it's kind of out in front. We're all reading the same book and it's like, well, I know Tom read, or not this Tom, I know well Bob or Mike or Sally, they all read this book. So I know we can talk about the same context. Mm-hmm. So it just made the conversation a little bit more open or absolutely um this is a book that last year as well as this year we read it out loud together so it's not a book that i'm having them read independently because i want those powerful conversations um i'm also taking my time reading the book with them so like you said this is it's a pretty heavy book Mm -hmm. um and i took the approach last year i'm doing the same this year where we read a chapter and then we break for like a week or two and do something else and then we read the next chapter um, but by doing that, we're able to get really deep into that chapter and the messages in that chapter and have conversations and amazing reflections. The stuff these kids are writing, I mean, you just mentioned, Galen, that, that we're all connected, right? And you feel those connections throughout the day because you've got your phone on you 24-7. But I, I'd like to argue, if you will, that it's not the connections that you and I had growing up. There's something very, Agreed. very different. Yep. When you're connected to a phone, thinking that you're constantly snapping or chatting or texting with someone, but but to me, that's not human conversation. That's not creating those emotions um, that we can have when we have the face-to-face conversations. So that's what's really powerful in this as well. And like I said, I think every student identifies in some way to it, the book. And this is done, I mean, I've seen, I've seen some photos and stuff. This is a lot of times done in circles mm-hmm. and, and the concept of whoever wants to answer this the concept of the circle is is what that's a big conversation i don't know if you want to go into it now we certainly we can, can. We touch on what, it later what, what i what i wanted to just make sure we didn't leave the one topic of is heather when i so rudely interrupted her because i just wanted to make sure that the listeners knew you know that she brings some legitimacy to the the conversation where I don't, <laughs> I play with kids all day. Yeah. I just screw around and have fun. <laughs> but um, Heather was talking about something extremely important. You know, sometimes we lose sight of the struggle that educators are going through as well. And so that's where I interrupted you mm-hmm. just about how powerful this book was, not just for students, but for teachers and what the challenges they're going through as well. I think teachers and, and gosh, I can speak that we've, we've led a bunch of educators through this book, um, through a virtual book club um, recently, and we're in a second session now. And, and just being able to hear from educators around the state or in the whole Northeast that we are all experiencing the same thing. And I think many of us are feeling hopeless. Um, Tom mentioned earlier that the average teacher now is only in the profession for seven years. That's unlike anything that I grew up with, you know. You knew the teachers that were there until they retired. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were proud of that profession. And I'm not saying that today's educators are not. I just think that they have so much that they are faced with 
that it's it's overwhelming, completely overwhelming. No longer do you become a teacher and you're just teaching content. That's what, what uh I guess what would be the challenges that teachers are facing now? More so than what you know the teachers you grew up with or I grew up with. Um, that there's so much more than just the content you're teaching. The emotional aspect, the emotional mental health needs of these students. Um, and until you can unpack all of that and create a safe space for these students, the academics really just. So, so when you, and again, the, the reason I'm, I'm saying this is because I always say like my high school, we talked about before, like my high school brain versus my brain now are totally mm -hmm. two different brains. So, um, but so like when I was in high school, you just kind of went with the flow when I was, you know, a pretty easygoing kid. I mean, we had, you know, there was, you always deal with stuff, but I, I, I feel like I was very fortunate and lucky and, um, you know, had a good upbringing and stuff. But if you, so I look back at that time period, I'm like, yeah, there were some kids I knew that struggled with certain things, but you never, I never heard the term mental health when I was a kid in school. Mm -hmm. Never heard it. I mean, that like, that was, it seems like a buzzword now where back then it was mm -hmm. like, you never heard it. But now, um, it's even more legitimate, even, you know, you know, me as a, you know, an adult and I, I still deal with stuff that I'm like anxiety and things where you're trying to kind of curtail it. And I find, um, it's gotten worse, but I don't know if it's gotten worse because of, you know, society and just how things are changing or has it gotten worse just because I've gotten older, understand my mind a little bit better than I did as a 15 year old. Um, so when you, cause you've been teaching now for enough to see, you know, a few chunks of kids go through, when you say like mental health, what do you think is causing, is it just more spoken about now or are students actually changing where like it, we, there was some of this 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, but we now see a legitimate spike where we're having students with more like concerns or issues with this or was it, you know, just not talked about 10, 15, 20 years ago and the problems aren't any different. It's just the awareness around them is different. Like, is there, have you been yeah. able to kind of find a correlation with that? Gosh, that's a great question. It's a heavy question. I don't know if I can point to one thing, Galen. Um, I do think there's a lot more going on with today's kids. I really, really do. Um, just because they're all writing about how they all, they don't feel worthy. They're, there's such an undertone of distraction in their brain all the time mm -hmm. um, that they're not able to come to class and compartmentalize things and and be able to do what they need to do at school, so to speak. Um, is that from the over, I'm going to call it like overconnectedness, but like social mm -hmm. media, but yeah, it just kids living on their phone in a social world. Like you said, you mm -hmm. can at, at your fingertips, you can ping pretty much anybody in the world. Mm -hmm. um, do you find, and they can receive it too. So like bullying goes further, you know, and then even if you're an athlete and you're playing a game or something, like I remember as a kid, I didn't know the players on the other team until I played them and I read their name in the paper. Mm -hmm. Now these kids are friends on Facebook and they're snapping each other. Now they know every highlight reel the kids are going up against. And back when I played, I was like, that kid from the rival school, yeah, we don't like him. He's on the rival team. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, actually it's kind of funny because a couple guys now are good buddies of mine that were like rival kids back then. Um, but it was just, we were at a different time period. So do you find that like that speaks to it a little bit? You know, just in the sense of like, just because... There's, I, I kind of go back to there's really no, it's very hard to escape that day today. Like when you go to, you know, first period class versus at home at night, mm -hmm. you're still with your peers yes. and it's like, you just don't get that time to be alone. And like, I like being, I, I 
consider myself an extroverted introvert. Like I like my alone time. Mm-hmm. I like just kind of chilling and being by myself. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and I find that that I have to proactively make that time for myself mm-hmm. to do it. Where if I just got in the kind of that flywheel of life, that would never happen. Mm-hmm. Just you get hit from everything with all these distractions. Um, so like I, I actively try to put a guard up against that. But again, I'm a 30 year old man versus, you know, a teenage kid that's mm-hmm. trying to figure this out and maybe doesn't have the tools necessary or the societal pressure where, you know, I think as you get older, you have, you know, I'll say less cares to give and don't, you know, some, and certain things, certain things stick with you. But as a kid, it's very tough to say no to your peer or no to, um, you know, if you have someone just kind of that peer pressure, it's very tough to fight against that. You may not want to, but then you feel like, again, that pressure, that collective pressure of like, well, everybody else is doing it. I'm going to go along for the ride. Yeah. And a 14 year old doesn't know how to set up boundaries for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't know when to, you know, unplug for a bit. Um, there's, there's a lot there. Um, I don't know. Like, what do you see when you, cause you're in all the different schools too. Oh, the same thing, right? Seeing the same thing. Um, Go ahead, and yeah. I, I just we'll want to collect it. my no, thoughts no, on it. Right. Yeah, we'll toss the uh, talking stick over to uh, Tom. Yeah, well, you know, there's um, that's the question we're trying to solve, you know. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell, um, outliers, mm-hmm. and some of those great pieces of work, he said, you know, it's it's the Swiss cheese effect. You know, these destructive decisions, the thing that we really spend a lot of time on. It's never one thing. You know, it's not a plane doesn't crash because of one thing. The engine doesn't blow up. There's four, five, six things, and those holes have to line up. And I think what we're seeing now in the world today is these holes lining up. Maybe there is a big chunk of social media in there. You know, I mean, when you were just talking about, you know, the conversations you would have as a kid versus conversations kids have today. Mm-hmm. You know, this social engagement system, the SES, you know, they, they say that, you know, your brain does 10 quadrillion things per second. I don't even know what that means, right? But most brain scientists, we put this in the book, and Benjamin Leibitz started this work years ago, the readiness potential, and just he did a lot of the early work in the 70s on um, the subconscious and how it is really in the driver's seat. You know, 96, 95, 96% of all your conscious decisions are made milliseconds up to seven seconds before you consciously make one. Like the next time Heather takes a drink of that water, some of that neural activity happens before she consciously thinks about it. Mm-hmm. When I'm watching the way your hands are folded right now and the ring on your finger, and there's a tiny little space between, it's, it's a little big in the way I see it, and the way you just smiled and the way you're resting your hands on your chin <laughs> and you're shaking your head and the lines around your eyes now. And like my brain's soaking up all of those things. And, you know, it's helping to build a neurological set of paths in my brain. And we have cut that in half in our kids nine hours is about the average time a kid spends in front of a screen now where for all of human history we sat in front of other people and we tried to figure it out and And that makes me think when i do circle i i often call it dinner table conversation Mm -hmm. because i'm modeling for them what many of them have never experienced I grew up where my family sat around a dinner table. Mm-hmm. You talk about your day and you stay and talk and talk and talk long after the food mm-hmm. is gone. Many of these students are not having that component even in their day. They're going home. Maybe there isn't a parent there. Their parent has to work. 
or they just go to their room and they're on, they're on their screen. So that that conversation is a huge piece that is missing, I think, in, in today's teens. What, and, what that leads to, um, and Jonathan Haidt's work, he wrote a great, he's a Canadian uh, scientist, and he wrote a great book called Coddling of the American Mind. And what a lot of that has led to is the inability for students to um, develop some of these great skills and strategies around resiliency and dealing with this natural stress response system that was not built properly in their brains. And, you know, we take that for granted. You had to negotiate with a kid on the playground over whose ball it was. Mm -hmm. Were you out? Were you safe? And all of these great skills. And my, my, most of my recreational reading is around the science of play. And uh, Stuart Brown, the great play scientist, said, um, everything a mammal learns to successfully go from childhood into adulthood, they learn in one place and one place only, in self-directed, self-controlled play. Every skill you have, you learned in front of this social engagement system, right? Watching your buddies and your parents and your friends and strangers. And a lot of that, those skills that you developed, you translated into the difficult times in your life. You know, Stuart Brown also says that play is nature's greatest means for reconciling cognitive difficulties. And I can unpack that for you, but it's, you know, kids during the Holocaust would play great, wonderful games like poke the corpse. <laughs> if you walked into your living room and your kids were playing poke the corpse, you'd be like, hey, buddy, not appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were preparing themselves. When your mom says, hey, buddy, Mr. Steinbeck didn't come out of his bunk this morning. Can you go check on him? You looked at your mom like, are you serious? But you did it. And you walked down this creaky, long hallway, and you turn, and there's one person still underneath a sheet in the bunk. And you have to see if he's alive. So kids would prepare themselves. And, and, and we've been doing that for millennia, kids, in this thing called play. And we have annihilated play in our children. I mean, it's just gone. When compulsory education started, <laughs> and I use that word compulsory, um, you had a minimum of two hours of recess. Minimum. You're lucky to get 30 minutes today. Lucky. You don't even get your jacket on before the timer starts and you got to think about going back inside. But that's where you learn great skills. You know, and, and there's been tons of studies on uh, play starvation studies. You know, if you don't allow mammals, like rats have a very unique play cycle from four weeks to 14 weeks. And... If you disrupt that play cycle, they don't even know how to mate properly, which is really fascinating when you see what's going on with gender today. You know, there's a long disc. I'm in the middle of Abigail Schreier's book right now um, that talks about this and very controversial, but um, just really talks about, you know, when you were playing Barbies, you were figuring out different genders. Like why all of a sudden is in Europe, is there a 4,000% increase in trans uh, individuals in the u.s it's over a thousand percent increase and you know i'm not certainly going to say it's because they're not playing but it's all of these things that are lining up the content kids listen to the content kids watch i mean it's not one thing and people always want to say oh it's the phone that's causing the problem well maybe maybe not the great brain scientist john medina says that both cognitive and affective empathy can increase with the child's social media use. And you just talked about not having a reset button anymore. 
I talk about that all the time. You used to be able to escape and run home to your family on the weekends and have this reset. Well, that's gone today. And you and Heather and I will never know what that feels like with a developing young brain. Um, very challenging for young people to not be able to escape any of this. Um, I lost my track. My train I think of too. That here. just made me think too. You're talking about that, and oh, I'm thinking something else that the students I feel are missing is is having a voice. And I think that's probably something that we all felt when we were 14, 15 years old. Like, oh, I want to be heard. You know, nobody's listening. But I think that power of listening is so so powerful, and it's something that they don't really have naturally in their own lives. Um, they don't hang out with their friends, you know, in the sense that, you know, oftentimes they're just texting to each other. And that takes away having a real conversation and being able to sit there and really listen to what the other person is saying. Um, I think that's really powerful too. Do you think, you know, you kind of hear like the nature versus nurture side of it. Like you, mm-hmm. and you, you go, um, and again, it's more in the forefront for me now because I have young children and I'm a parent and you kind of, you know, I look at, I'm more aware and cognizant of what I'm doing with my own children mm-hmm. in the sense of like, okay, being more present, talking about, you know, talking more to them, pausing and, and you know, asking them questions. And again, I think we talked about before we hit, went live about meeting them where they're at and knowing, you know, it's, you know, I have three young kids, but they all have way different personalities and way different skill sets. And it's fun to see it. But I also, you know, where I can challenge one of them better in a certain category than the other one. But I, you know, and, you know, uh, a win for my son vocabulary, my oldest is like, he's very well, um, his vocabulary is great where my actually other two kids are a little bit behind in that category. So like, they're, 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 they're not behind. They're right where they're supposed to be. Correct. I like that. Yes. So <laughs> their, their, their level though is, you know, I, I have a different expectation of what they're going to come out with. But to me is like, if they're hitting and I know, I kind of look at this, if it's like my level of difficult, so I'll put this in perspective. I'm assuming Tom probably lifts more weight than I do. But if I hit a PR for me or something that was good for me, and that might be a middle, a 60% lift for you, I'm still going to be excited that I hit that lift, even though you go 150 pounds more than I do. And that, and if that was your best lift, I would be excited for you. And if, I, if I'm like, ah, that's his third warm-up set, and it's more than I've ever lifted in my life, but for him it's his third warm-up set, I'm not that impressed. Not that it's not a cool weight, but I just know like on that scale relative to you is different. So I always I look at that with each of my kids. Um, and I does that translate, you know, you said as a teacher – when you have, um, you know, these kids go to school or go from, sorry, go to school from home for a lot of kids, like that is the most structure and most balance mm-hmm. they're going to have in their day. And they go home to like a family that's, um, again, I, I try to be very supportive of my, you know, I had a good upbringing, my, hopefully I can give that to my kids, but not everybody's as lucky when they go home. And a lot of it, when you look at kids, um, you know, from an adult, I mean, there's, Kids are so, and I'm the same way. There's things I do to this day that are ingrained in me from how I was raised by my parents, even as a 30-year-old. Mm-hmm. There's there's certain things that I probably don't even think about that I do and act, and it's something that happened to me when I was five, six, seven, eight years old, and I just, I, I don't even know it exists. I just, I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that when kids come to school, like that is a more of an emphasis on the teachers now? Absolutely. So that's probably where a lot of that stress comes too. You just feel like Absolutely, a little bit more, 100%. you know, like... We're carrying a little bit more of the load than mm-hmm. maybe we did in the past or unfortunately yeah. and, did it in the past. And 
it takes a special person to be an educator to be able to take that all on um, and to be vulnerable in front of your students, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to be, you have to be today. And I understand the challenge with that. I understand that not every educator who entered education 25 years ago is, is ready for, um, for the challenge of today. Yeah, I mean, I, I think teaching is one of the hardest professions. I could not be a teacher. I mean, in just like the, it's, you got patience, you got to have a, there's so many things you have to have as um, a teacher. And I think, yeah, I, I think anybody that goes into the teaching profession and really steps up to, to do it well. And, you know, because there's, like you said, seven years, like, there's been mm-hmm. teachers go in and out. But I mean, we named a couple of teachers I was lucky enough to have in school that are still there, that were there, you know, prior to me graduating and everything. And, um, you know they go above and beyond but it's not it's not easy like I, I think just showing up every day and all these extracurriculars and being there mm-hmm. on weekends or evenings and you know kind of going another way because they have lives too but it does it takes time and effort to build those connections and i constantly feel every day that i'm just modeling for them um and that can that can be a lot on my shoulders to constantly just be self-aware enough that everything i say or every action i take in the classroom they're all watching me and they're all picking up on on whatever and interpreting things maybe completely different from from what I want but but they're watching and they're learning a lot from that just like a parent do you, do you deal with imposter syndrome at school oh that's a good question I mean I, yeah. I deal with it in certain yeah. things but I'm saying when you have say you have 20 eyeballs or 40 eyeballs 20 yeah. students all looking at you mm-hmm. you know and, and they're looking at you as the you know the leader and the person that mm-hmm. should know all the stuff that's going on we're human we all we don't know everything yeah. you know and you got to be willing to tell your students that. Yeah. that sometimes I, I screw up. I'm like, okay, yesterday <laughs> did not work. We're going to try it again. Take two. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, are students more aware of authenticity today than they were before? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. I just want to, I have my thought, but I want to hear yours. Oh. Like, is there the like the yes I'm... meter a little bit better than what it used to be? I think so. So does that make it yeah. more challenging for you? Or does that make it more freeing? I think more freeing. That's okay. just my my way of living life. But yeah, that's a great question. No, they are they're spot on. They are aware. Because I think they're mm. smarter now from a, from an awareness and emotional standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I look at my kids now and I'm like, they're way, I know they're smarter than I was at five, like mm-hmm. either four or whatever. Like I'm, I just, there's no way I was that emotionally in tune as a five-year-old. Mm. Now, granted, I'm going mm-hmm. from a, you know, memory of a five-year-old, which is yeah. very limited, but I think that most students, and we've had, like, I've had interns here, whether it be high school or college, same thing. Some of the conversations with them is just different. I'm like, I don't think I was thinking like that at mm-hmm. that age. So I think that's also a product of maybe it's what you're exposed to, mm-hmm. but they're exposed to more. There are benefits to being exposed to more things. You kind of- There get is, to, yeah. They can research yeah. things and get immediate information, and that yeah. can be a positive. But I do agree, they- they are pretty deep about things, and I don't know if I was at that age. I always looked at a teacher as like, same thing as my parents. I grew up like parent, I'm kid, pa- uh, mm-hmm. teacher, I'm a student. Like there was a divide there. It was very much, you know, I was very respectful to teachers and very respectful to my parents, but there was certainly like a line where I was like, I don't want to cross that line. Mm-hmm. I don't know if students are crossing that line, but I feel like that line's probably a little more blurred now. Where um, I had. Actually, one of the names I mentioned before, a teacher was on recently, and he was saying that a lot of students now are asking 
um, like why more? Like why should I do that? Like why? Mm-hmm. What's the answer? And, and I've heard it two ways. One is that a good thing, or is one is that just a form of laziness or procrastination, where mm-hmm. it's like, eh, I'm gonna ask why because I really just don't want to do it, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna almost wear down the teacher, so I don't. Because I do think there's a level of if your teacher or or maybe someone that's in like an authoritarian kind of position ask you to do something. Mm-hmm. I do think even if you don't agree with it, I still think there's a level of respect in the sense that like I'm going to do it. I know not everything you're going to do school-wise is going to make a massive impact on your like that paper you write today is not going to determine success in the future, but I think the micro of like you listening to direction and putting your best effort and all those little like intangible micro things mm-hmm. are what's going to translate 30 years down the you know when you go from a, a kid that's in as a 15 year old to now you're a 45 year old person, but now you're applying it to work or applying it to your child or applying it to some kind of setting. But because you learn those good skills as a kid and didn't just blow it off. Cause again, the grades not, I, I look at grades as not being important as long as someone's doing the best they can and putting the effort. I think if you put in the effort and are a good person, I think those are like the two things like you don't, I don't know if great, I don't, again, I'm, I've been so far removed from this, but like grades don't impress me. So if someone says like, I got a 4.0 or A or something and kind of like back to the weightlifting thing, well, if they're really smart and they got an A and they should get an A, then that's good. You like, you manage, but if a kid is, has a C and manages a B plus, like I think that kid excelled, you know, it doesn't make them better or worse, but that for that kid, they, they didn't, they didn't need an A. They, they, well, a B plus was. Here's a question for you. Yeah. So a fairy God, your fairy godmother comes and visits you, gives you a magic wand. Mm-hmm. If you could wave a magic wand and get an A and barely know the material or get a C and know it perfectly, maybe better than the educator, which one would you pick? I would take, I actually would take the C yeah. and understand the work. Right. Now, if you asked me 15, 20 years ago, probably not. Yeah. yeah. Most kids will always take the A. Mm-hmm. But um, what you're outlining is what Carol Dweck talks about in her great book, Mindset. And we as adults and parents and educators for many, many years, and I'll tie this back into what you were saying uh, about young people today, because I think about it all the time, that it's very dangerous to reward a child. And youth sports is the greatest example of this. Um, we turn it into edu- she turns it into education as well. But when you praise a kid for the outcome or the results, right? Good job, Jimmy. You got a home run. What does Jimmy got to do next time he gets up to bat to get your love? Get a home run. Right. And every parent would say, I don't believe that, Tom. What well, really doesn't matter what you believe. You're going to, you know, train that child because you're praising them for the outcome or the results. Um, that's what they believe they need to get to get your affection. And, um, and, you know, Carol Dweck lays out a lot of the the research around it, and it even leads to cheating in young people. Little Sally gets an A, mm-hmm. what is she, and you kiss her on the forehead when she walks through the door. Good job. What does she got to get next time? An A. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, oh, geez, what do we praise kids for then? You praise them for the effort, like you said. Jimmy got a home run, and you say, man, you worked really hard in practice all week. You see what happens? And, and, and you reinforce that effort that they put in. But kids today, I think they still have that same um, reward-based system, right, that, that drives them forward, um, especially when it comes to parents and the people that they want to be praised by. But um, 
information used to be a commodity. Those who controlled the information controlled the world. Today, you don't need that. I had this conversation that just before I walked out the door of Peru with, with their principal today and their, um, their middle school principal, their high school principal, we were all having a little conversation, and this is exactly what we were talking about. We were talking about the why. And Gen Z students, young people, they want to know the why. And they question you as an educator, why? And we're not prepared for that as adults. Because we didn't. Because we had to sit in front of the teacher. They had the book. They had the information. Kids got all the information they need today. And I think, and, and I'm going to just tie this back together, the new role of the educator, and I get a lot of flack for saying this, I think educators are the most important people in America today. And there's a lot of people that argue with me, especially very conservative people that said, my kid isn't going to school to learn about empathy and compassion. I'll teach them that. But empathy has been cut in half in the last 30 years. It's a human skill that we used to get naturally in self-directed, self-controlled play. That we used to get naturally, you know, cooking with dad or working on a car with mom, being in the barn with grandpa. That social engagement system I was talking about was locked in all the time. And neurons were wiring, they're firing together, and they're wiring together around some of these human skills. So now we have a generation of young people that know all the information in the world but these human skills have just plummeted. And then you say, why is there a mental health crisis? I wish we would also say an emotional crisis. Mm -hmm. We just default to mental. But the fact is a baby doesn't have cognition, really. Mm -hmm. It has emotions. And I think that that's one of the great struggles. But I think that just to put this all back together, I think the new breed of educator has to be prepared. And this is what's going to beat up educators. and It's going to get people out of the profession. You have to be prepared as an educator to start focusing on these human skills as part of education. And there's a lot of people that are going to disagree with me, especially very conservative people that say, that's a bunch of crap. I don't want some teacher teaching my kid. Well, who's teaching them? And I love having this conversation with people that are very conservative. I'm rather conservative myself. Um, I have this conversation with them all the time. And I'm like, you really haven't been. I was a teacher like 10 years ago. Okay, so you really haven't been in school and seen what's really going on with young people, right? Mm -hmm. Your kid has a phone. Do you know that um, Gene Twangy in iGen writes this? I, I, I believe it's from iGen. If you put a phone in a human being's hand, I did not say a student, in a human's hand, you will cut their happiness score in half. Mm -hmm. Think deeply about that one. Because mm -hmm. you want one thing for your children to be happy happy that's what you want for your kids mm -hmm. and you put a phone in their hand because you think it's going to make them happy you'll cut a human's happiness score in half by putting a phone in their hand um i've heard this quote multiple times and it's kind of, i think becoming more popular but a comparison is a thief of joy mm -hmm. and with the idea that you know whether it's the phone or whether it's the comparison of kids even going back to the sports thing, if you like, you had a good game, and then you watch the highlight reel of like LeBron James' son's kid playing, you're like, "Wow, he's way better than me." Like, it's a different person. Who cares? Like, you know what I mean? But it, it, it you're comparing yourself, or mm -hmm. you know, this happens in business. Someone's like, they got more money, they have flashier this, they have flashier that, um, you know. And, and but I think when people look at that, what does that do? Does it make you feel better? And if it makes it feel better, if I look at a picture of Tom and I'm like, I'm better looking than Tom is, then does that do anything for me? Do I get a boost? Or if I look at Tom, God, he's way better looking than I am. Do I, you know, do I cry, cry that night? You know what I mean? But that's, 
you're comparing something that's really out of your control. Um, and success is not how good we are compared to other people. Success is how good mm-hmm. we are compared to how good we could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we stopped letting young people understand that it's not about other people. But unfortunately, we put this in their hand. And mm-hmm. the only thing they do is compare with filters, everything. And this is the long conversation with this thing. I mean, we could talk for days about the ramifications. I mean, any parent listening should get Gene Twangy's book, iGen, will explain everything. I just keep adding yeah, to yeah, my, my yeah. reading list. You've so. got to, if you have kids yourself, you really need to read that book because it's going to tell you neurologically what's really happening with young people when it comes to technology and phones. Yeah. But what an amazing standard. opportunity we have if we start to think of school as like, wow, we're bringing together hundreds if not thousands of students from the area where we can create a different climate. We can create the future of our community by focusing on those things because those are the things that they're going to need. When they go out into the world. So, so taking, so I guess this book you said you've handed out hundreds of this of these yeah. books and and to educators. So where do you typically? It looks like most of your travel is kind of like in the New York, Vermont areas. You want me to give you the Sweethearts and Heroes um, background? Well, well, yeah. Why don't we do that? Yeah, we'll, quick. I'll I think make, this will help connect some people. To yeah, I'll make it. I'll make it as quick as I can. So people always say, like, they ask me two things, like, how did this start, and why do you do it? And um, I'll, I'll try and answer at least one of them. Um, Sweethearts and Heroes started when I was nine years old, eight years old. People say, huh? I didn't realize this, but my parents, I grew up in Philadelphia. My parents ran a mission home, used to take people off the streets of Philadelphia. And it wasn't a registered, you know, state-run shelter. It was just my parents just connected to different people or some church. And, you know, somebody was down on their luck. Um and really what I've, what I've come to reflect on is that they were hopeless. And I mean, I could just rattle off story after story of people. You know, I saw people carted out of our house in handcuffs. My dad wrestling people to the floor until the police got there. You know, most of the stories don't have happy endings. Um, there's a few, um, but these were people that had nowhere to go. And um, I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> I've, I've been last couple of years, I haven't talked a lot about this because when you're a kid, you don't tell people you have homeless people living with you. That's mm-hmm. weird. You don't think that when you're a kid, you know, these are just your brothers and sisters growing up and, oh, we got to go to prison and visit Bobby this weekend. And last week he was at the dinner table. And so that that's kind of this, this beginning. And then, of course, I was a struggling learner, like crazy bad. Like you never met my academic equal. Like I had some challenges. Um, And uh, so we moved to New York after my dad pulled me out of school because of the, you know, academic challenges I had growing up. Um, They said I was dyslexic in second grade. He took me out of school and decided to homeschool me for a year. Then we moved upstate New York from Philadelphia. And uh, I got involved in the sport of wrestling, which dominated my life. And the only reason I went to school was to wrestle. And, uh, you know, I could get the grades I needed to get to stay on the mat. I was going to go to college. Crazy long story, but great story. I tell kids about how I even got into college. It's almost too hard to believe. It makes you almost believe in cosmic forces. Get into school to go wrestle, and then I fall in love with education. A couple people came into my life and just taught me that I had every strategy I needed to be successful academically. Just use the same strategies I used in wrestling because life is not a talent contest. 
It's a strategy game. And those who have the great strategies win the game. Started to apply them, graduated with almost a perfect GPA in psychology and philosophy. Didn't get any smarter. I just learned how to use those strategies. Found myself on a crazy TV show after college um, on Spike TV called The Ultimate Fighter. Spent, yeah. Okay. Um, I was on season two. And um, when I got done, um, you know, I, I just did it as I, I just wasn't ready to stop wrestling. But when I got done, people would call me, hey, my kid saw you on the show. Could you talk to my cheerleaders or my volleyball team? And I've always had great coaches, not just in sports, but in business and life. And I was had some business background, too, in railroad industry for 17 years, owned a restaurant, a gym, a bunch of stuff. And um, I've just been a collector because I say great leaders are strategy collectors. Right? You just go collect some strategies and mm -hmm. you know, yeah. become a good leader if, you're, if you play the game the right way. Anyway, I just started talking to young people, mostly sports kids, um, leadership, motivational goal setting. And a guy called me one day and said, hey, I'm in trouble. Guy I wrestled with in college. I was in charge of the bullying seminar and it was an Olympic level speed skater and his training schedule changed and he said, can you fill in? And I'm like, eh. He saw me do stupid stuff with kids, run around a stage, act crazy. And I'm like, eh, maybe. So, you know. I'm a kind of an information hound and I didn't know what to do about bullying. I was never bullied. I was never a bully. Just so I was a bystander. I saw it happen. 96% of bullying is never addressed by schools, even in the best schools in this country. But 85% of the time there's other people watching it happen. And I was like, holy crap, that was me. You still remember the first name of the kid when you were in school that wasn't treated the right way. Mm -hmm. You haven't even forgot the kid's name. You can ask someone that's 80 that question. And if they really contemplate it, they'll be like, oh, yeah, what was that kid's name? And, and they'll be able to tell you. That was the position that I took, was from the bystander. But then I stumbled upon the word bully. Blustering quarrel, some overbearing person who habitually, intentionally badger smaller, weaker people. Okay? But it originally meant sweetheart in the 16th century. When oh. it was first... Uh, coined the word bully meant sweetheart it was someone that came into your life and pushed you to become better faster stronger smarter when you picked out that sport that you were going to be the next lebron james and mm -hmm. you're like this sucks i hate it you were going to quit they said no 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 you picked it you're finishing the season and that was pretty annoying or you brought home that instrument and it was really hard you were going to be the next you know that's french horn but french yes. horn yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no wasn't good at it there's no rock star french horn players but mm -mm. You know, but, you know, you bought that French horn home and you're like, oh, it's going to be awesome. And you're like, oh, this is hard. And they're like, I bought that stupid thing for you. Get it out and start practicing. Or when you were in college one day and life was really hard um, and you didn't want to get out of bed, she called you up on the phone and said, get your stuff on. I'm coming over. Those are your 16th century bullies. You wouldn't be in that chair right now if it wasn't for a handful of people. And I had this moment of reflection thinking, I wouldn't have got into that ring because I play about a minute of me competing professionally in a cage, mm -hmm. and I'm here to talk about bullying. It's this like delicious irony, right? It's like, what's happening here? Kids are like looking at their teachers like, is this really happening? Loud music, the lights are out, there's fighting blood. And then I run out on the stage and I say, I'm going to tell you one thing about the sport of mixed martial arts. I hate fighting. And that starts the show. But... Where I really get to, and the first time I did this was in front of 900 kids. And the guy that I wrestled with in college that bullied me. 
the right way. You know, he shoved me. He was bigger than me, stronger than me, older than me. And he would shove me across the wrestling room when I didn't get a takedown. Or in the weight room, he would slap me on the face and, you know, I'm ah, trying to lift it. And, and, and I just had this moment. I'm like, this guy bullied me. I wouldn't have got in that cage if it wasn't for him. And so my whole plan was to go into the school and be like, show that clip, unveil this discovery that I had made, this 16th century bully, and say, the only reason, boys and girls, that I could get in that cage was because of your gym teacher. <laughs> and I was just going to praise my buddy that, you know, helped me get in there. And, and what I really discovered was it's a common thread that we all share in this room. Everybody you meet. I've never met a human that's like, nope, I did it all myself. I mean, I, I've seen stories of people like that, and his name was Nicholas Cruz. I met stories of people like that, and his name was Evan. And it drives everyone to this feeling of hopelessness when you don't have people in your life that, that help you grow your meaning, your purpose, your significance, or accept you. It always leads a human to hopelessness. And, and that's where my buddy Rick comes in, my speaking partner. You know, Rick laid on the ground September 1st, 2006, looked up in the sky as his body was burning away. 70% of his body was instantly taken from him. And what he really lost, though, wasn't his ears, wasn't his nose, wasn't his leg. He lost his meaning, his purpose. He was a soldier, a leader, um, a wrestler, a football player, and especially the acceptance that he had from children. Now he was a monster. Couldn't go out of the house without kids running and shrieking, you know, hiding behind their parents. And it's the same issue that young people face today, this, this lack of meaning, purpose, significance, and this acceptance that everybody wants, right? You just talked about that, this deep acceptance. And we've created this facade acceptance that you got to, be like other people. You just can't be yourself. And, and that's the great struggle. And so, you know, as this unfolded, um, and I was just telling this little story, I met Rick. I knew I needed someone that understood hope because hope stands for hold on. Possibilities exist, H-O-P-E. And we have a generation of young people that don't feel like they can hold on. They don't feel like there's possibilities for their future in the most technologically advanced civilization Earth has ever known. We have our young people making more destructive decisions than ever before in human history. We've never seen this epidemic before. And um, so that's why it unfolded. Um, I found myself just doing it, you know, 20, 30 schools a year back in 2009, 2010. And by 2014, it got pretty, I've had some great bosses that let me take days off to go talk to kids. And, but in 2014, I just, you know, I quit my career. You know, I had a hell of a career in the railroad industry. Um, quit my job and uh, just went in all full, you know, went in, uh, jumped in the deep end. And uh, today we've been in front of about 2 million kids from Houston to Hawaii to Montreal and back a couple times. And, um, and it's all over this country, this feeling of hopelessness in our children. And we should be asking why and what we can do about it. And I know what the answer is. There's no doubt about it. Because I like saying to people, this I like to shock people sometimes. I say, we don't have a race issue in America. And they're like, oh, what? People's heads turn quick on that one. But I say, we don't have a gender issue in America. We don't have a poverty issue in America. The issue we have is the lack of sweethearts and heroes. People that give hope 
and people that take action. That's the problem with the world today, right? And uh, it's when you were struggling in life, that sweetheart gave you hope. And I don't mean it was a life or death situation, but when you wanted to give up, someone came into your life and said, no, no, man, you're going to get through this. And then, of course, the action piece. You know, it was Einstein that said this world is a dangerous place, not because of evil people, but because of those who choose to do nothing about it. And that's the other big half of what we do. And I'll, I'll land on this. So, you know, I'm sure you have a few thoughts, but, you know, we teach kids what to do when they see kids not being treated the right way. You were never taught what to do. Your mom and dad said, hey, stick up for those kids that are different. That's the best advice they gave you. And what the heck does that even mean? You want me to punch someone in the nose, dad? You want me to do what? Go tell a teacher what you're not going to do. And so we have just separated ourselves from so many different groups. Um, Not that we're better, but most things are about awareness. And our message is about taking action and giving kids real skills that they can use. So that's kind of the background of, you know, and and, and now we're we're booked already into next December. So when this all... So when this happened, or like originally, so this is about 2009 that you filled in for your... your yeah, somewhere in that prime. Like your nine, old 10. teammates, club, yeah, like yeah, 900 some, kids. Um, how, f- I mean, did that just lead right into more speeches or was there kind of like I did the speech and then I... No, no, it's it? funny because the first one I did at his school, there was another school there that said, oh my gosh. And it was really elementary at that point. Like, that was incredible. Could you do that at our school? And I'm like... Mm, maybe. I will give you $50 and a gas card. I'm like, mm, okay. And uh, so, but yeah, then and we did another school and then someone else heard of it. 99.9% of everything we do is word of mouth. And, and we're in 100 schools plus every school year, just word of mouth. Um, and, and again, Heather, you, you probably would say this because I think you, you probably are living this now. So when you say, because I've seen you guys at you know, a handful of schools locally so far. And um, do you find that that's the same amongst teachers? It's a small town. So oh. like, you, you know, you teach at one school, but you know, you, you, I'm sure you know teachers at other schools mm-hmm. that you kind of run into. And like, I saw it online that, you know, Tom or Rick or whoever came and talked and, you know, what was that like? And how do we get them to our school? Absolutely. Yeah. Teacher to teacher conversations. And every school is needing or craving that, that climate or culture of empathy with that, that can change, that can change the world. If you want to. Well, it's funny what you're saying because there's no principal or superintendent that's going to take a chance. Mm-hmm. Very few because you bring in a, <laughs> a stinker of a presenter. Not only do you have to answer to the board on the money that you spend, mm-hmm. but you got to answer to the kids and the teachers. And so what typically happens is your principal or superintendent you're going to listen to your buddy, principal, or superintendent. And so it says, oh, my gosh, you got to see these guys. And that's just the way it works with us. Um, yeah, so just, I mean, kind of coming from our, our line of work, but like just good reviews, good testimonials, things like that. And do you find that? But it's got to be person to person. You can write all the reviews and testimonials you want, yes. make all the videos you want. It doesn't matter anymore. It's, it's person to person still. No, absolutely. And I think, do do you find that kids are now reaching out to other kids they now know from other schools saying, I was going to say, so it must, kind of like as the book has now gone yeah, to Yeah, like I think the there's been powerful connections that way as well. Yeah, I went to, uh, which is um, awesome. Was that school in Pennsylvania this year? Um, Flight 93, um, Shanksville. Oh, yeah, yep. I did a speech this summer in uh, in Williamsport at uh, Lycoming College. 
and the kid was so moved by it. The kid's going to the Naval Academy or something. He was so moved by it. He forced his school, a senior, to bring us in. Hmm. It was the coolest thing. More and more kids are, are, are requesting this, which is really something I've, I haven't thought a lot about, but more and more kids are requesting. I got a note from a kid yesterday um, on, my, on, on Instagram. It was crazy. Um, a struggling kid that just said, post, reposted a picture of um, he and I a year ago at Bucktail in Pennsylvania. And uh, it was the coolest thing. And, and he said uh, right in, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to, to, to kill time here, but it was, it was just really cool because, um, and it's something I haven't thought a lot about, so it's really interesting what you're, what you're, what you're kind of bringing up. Um, oh, a kid made this the other day too. Isn't that cool? That's Rick and Tom. <laughs> That's crazy. I know you can't see but how it, but... empowering, right? The kids can be but, speaking well, up and sharing and that, what they need. And the power of this one was um, th that's the kid right there in Pennsylvania. Okay. Right. And but the the coolest thing about his message was um, uh, this was a year ago. I'm still so thankful uh, and inspired by uh, their work. Uh, I couldn't find the courage to talk to my dad about my feelings to go to therapy until I spoke to them. Hmm. Isn't that the coolest thing? Yeah. This young person knew, had the awareness that I need therapy. Couldn't find the courage until they left that auditorium. And after Rick and I spoke, he went and talked to his dad. And now a year later, he's doing better. I, was, I, I, I mean, have you had, I'm guessing you've had a lot of stories like that? Where like you see Thousands. Kids. Yeah. I was going to say, it's got to be. Because I think what you said with the book, if you get you get kids in a circle, and again, I, we'll talk about the circle later, mm -hmm. but I'm assuming circle is the most powerful shape in the world, in, or in the universe, but for multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. But um, the idea that you're there's nowhere to hide in a circle because mm -hmm. you can see everybody. Um, but you got to look at, I think, as you start to make it more acceptable to talk about when you're in a group of people looking everybody in the eye, again, no phones, looking at people in the eye, talking about these heavy subjects, mm -hmm. that... I, I got to think that it becomes just a little bit easier to have those conversations than it did should you have assigned them to go read at home or just they picked it up on their own. Like if I was to read that book at home, I knowing myself, I read that as a 15-year-old, I'd probably read it and not talk to anybody about it. Mm -hmm. I would read it. I'm like, that's pretty powerful, but I don't want to talk to like Nick or mm -hmm. Mike or whatever about these topics. So I just, you know, it goes in my bookshelf. I get the knowledge and I'm like, oh, that, that'd be nice. Then I see a bully. And I'm like, I know I should step up, but it's it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Or also now I'm putting myself out there. So now you're in the line of yeah. fire, whatever that might be with the bully. Um, like I know myself at 15 years old, I wouldn't have done that. Me neither. And I even to this day when you see something, if you were to see some altercation on the street, would you step up and do it? Right. You hope you would, but then push comes to shove, would you do it? <coughs> and I, I don't know if I could answer that 100% and say, you know, I would actually step in and mm. – um, you know, be a not be a bystander, but try to defuse mm -hmm. a situation, wherever the case might mm -hmm. be. So I, I just think, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's heavy stuff, but like I said, I think because it's still not normalized, which sounds like that's a lot of what you're aiming to do is normalize these conversations. A hundred percent, man. I mean, normalize yeah. several things that haven't happened before, and I think that in past epochs of history or spans of history we haven't had to 
But we also haven't had a generation of young people that are struggling so much with their emotional, this emotional contagion and this the the cognitive challenges, the mental health issues that we've had before because they're tiny little stress response systems. Here's here's the crux of a lot of it. Their tiny stress response systems were not built properly. I mean, human beings from there's a great book called Born for Love. It's a it's a great book, but it. It's about empathy. I mean, most of our work is around empathy and the, how empathy germinates and how it grows in humans. Not like modern day, because people think when you think empathy, oh, compassion, this is that uh, left-wing, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, like you're trying to program our kids. Like, no, the only reason the human beings are here today is because of empathy, because we learn to get together and not rip each other to shreds. Right. I mean, that's why we are here today. And there's just tons of evidence and their little stress response systems have been so damaged and in born for love. It, it, it begins with eye gazing with babies. Baby mommy looks at baby's eyes. Mommy looks away. Baby cries. Mommy looks back really quick. Mommy realizes that, oh, my gosh, baby's OK. Mommy looks away. Baby cries. Mommy waits about another second before she looks back. The kid's okay. I just checked on him. And then the baby gets a little louder. She looks back. And that time horizon expands over time. And eventually, after your third kid, you're like, he's fine. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what you do. But unfortunately today, and a lot of this work came from rough Russian orphanages, where babies that didn't get eye-gazing, or got too much eye gazing, which is another great damage. It's the helicopter parent. Like you don't allow their stress response system to develop properly, which means they have to face adversity. One of the great tragedies is the safe space movement. And, and we use that sometimes because it's, uh, I, 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 like, I have distinguished them. I believe in having safe places, but I distinguish them to make sure that especially educators know what I'm talking about. It's not a great idea to hide from stress. Your body was designed for stress, right? Mm -hmm. And when you voluntarily subject yourself to that, or sometimes even involuntarily, the body knows how to deal with that, right? It's like when you put yourself in cold water, when you live in Florida, your body adapts to the heat. Well, the same thing cognitively happens. And um, we just don't allow those stress response systems to develop properly the way they have for thousands of years. And we changed it like that. And so I, I, I derail myself all the time and I start talking about something else. But what I was saying on the safe space thing, um, I believe in creating a secure environment, which really means you don't feel like you're going to be attacked. And that's one of the things about circle. Like if you say, I'm going to have a safe space for you to run away from every challenge that you face, mm -hmm. that's a bad idea. Yeah. Because your stress response system doesn't properly develop. Like so there are times right. that you do have to run. Like you're in you know, physical threat of your life. Yeah, you better run. Like <laughs> we need a safe place for that to lock the door. Mm -hmm. But when somebody calls you a name, you know, we used to develop strategies or on playgrounds and other places to develop properly. You know, um, your buddy would tease you. Teasing, there, there's a ton of literature on, on how valuable teasing is. In your friend group growing up, did you have one kid that got picked on but no one else could pick on him? 
You always do. Yeah, but we but, still have the stakes. Right, but yeah. what were you doing for that kid? You were helping that kid so that when he or she or they went into the wild, mm-hmm. right, the hallway, because we release kids into the wild, right? Mm-hmm. Now they got a few skills because you spent time picking on your buddy. Now it can also go too far with your friends and you can hurt your friends, but the truth is you were developing naturally that kid's stress responses. But you're the weak link, man. We got to help you out here. You're our buddy. No one else is allowed to pick on you, but we are. Yeah, You're helping them grow. So I, I can ramble about that kind of stuff for hours. Um, so so go, going back to um, 2009 to now, so you got, what, 14, math here, 14 years roughly. Um, how have you evolved the program from that initial speech to yeah. where you are now? Um, and how have kids have or have kids, I guess the first one, um, how have you changed or evolved, but then have kids changed since that initial one oh, with yeah. dealing with them? Because 2009 is about, I'm, I'm going to, it's a little bit beyond me, but I'm going to blanket myself or kind of roll myself into that time period versus today, which feels like a whole different generation yeah. of kids. Um, so I guess, are there a difference between how you, you know, that 2009 group versus a 2023 class that you might have you know met this week? Oh, yeah. I mean, even in the last year, the the changes have been tremendous in 6th and 7th graders. We have no problem keeping people's attention. And that's one of the big battles you have right now. And even Heather would tell you in education, you can't compete with this. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Yeah. This phone, TikTok, and, and now you're going to sit a kid down for 40 minutes when they're used to changing the screen, you know, 400 times in 40 minutes? And you're going to sit down and talk to them about of mice and men? Are you kidding me? Good book. I'm just saying, good luck with that one, buddy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I could sit here for the next hour and talk about the changes in young people. But the greatest one that I talk about are these, you know, these human skills. That's what I call them. I'm trying to not use SEL. I like SEL, social-emotional learning. But unfortunately, it's being hijacked for other things i think initially and i like talking about this initially when you look at the core competencies for social emotional health it's made up of five things self-awareness self-management responsible decision making social awareness and relationship skills i can't figure out what is left wing or what hidden agenda there is when it comes to self-awareness you know what I mean? Like maybe if your dad had been a little bit more aware of his feelings, he wouldn't have smacked the crap out of your mom and damaged you so bad. Like I'm not sure what's wrong with being aware of your feelings and your thoughts and how you treat people. Like that's probably a good idea. But unfortunately, um, we have seen um, whether you agree or disagree, it's, I don't really care. But now there's a big fight over social emotional and it's this mechanism that, you know, the political system is used to reprogram our children. But for me, the biggest change in young people is the lack of empathy and the depletion of many of these social emotional skills. Right, the the the, uh, the awareness that I'll, I'll give you a good example. So we were just down in Long Island with some sixth graders last week, and uh, Rick and I were beside ourselves because there were pockets of kids that were just not locked in, and we're like, 
I mean, they were disruptive to other kids around them. And I don't believe in public humiliation. I don't call kids out. Once in a while, if I can see there's kids around them that really need this message, sometimes I'll, you know, have to do something. And like, I found myself even a little bit irritated. And, and no kid can really get under my skin. And this is at multiple schools in that sixth, seventh grade range. And afterwards, Rick and I were shaking our heads like, what is going on here? It's the first time in a decade that we've had this kind of challenge. But you know what, those kids, every one of them in multiple schools make a beeline for me afterwards. Hey, man, what's going on? And I look at them like, and I wanted to say, dude, like, don't even talk to me. You've ruined everything for the kids around you. Like, they were trying to pay attention, and you, the kid had no idea. Multiple kids, just zero, not zero, but almost zero self-awareness about how they were acting. And you brought it to their attention. Uh, one kid I did. Yeah. <laughs> but Rick and I afterwards were having dinner and we're talking about it and we're like, those kids were not trying to be disruptive and hurtful. They just don't have those simple human skills of paying attention. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them during COVID, right, they didn't have to. What, where did you learn those things? In third grade, fourth grade. Hey, Jimmy, sit down. Hey, would you pay attention? Hey, listen up. Like, you're never really taught how to listen. You're just told how to listen. Mm-hmm. Hey, can you listen, pal? But you have that repetition, that spaced, repetitive practice where people would tell you over and over again, hey, man, you're not listening. Hey, man, you're not listening. Hey, man, you're not listening. We sent most kids home for two years during that developmental window mm-hmm. that you can never really regain. It's like the, the development of empathy. If you miss certain windows, like the age of independence for a human mammal is about between the age of four and five. Most people fall out of their chair when you tell them that. In the 1950s, you had to be able to walk four to six blocks by yourself to be eligible for kindergarten. Any mom would like be like, ah, are you kidding me? But that's the way it was for all of human history. In hunter-gatherer cultures, you left your teepee at about the age of five, and then you went and played with kids all day. And you were gone all day long. There's no streetlights. That's then. right. Yeah. There's no streetlights back then. And but but it's just it's just interesting, uh, you know they, these these skills that kids don't and, and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. What I was saying about the 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 um, uh, the age of independence, uh, Peter Gray writes about this. A great uh, from Boston College. And if you don't socialize a kid by if other kids don't socialize a kid by the age of five, that it, it's too late. Kind of a, a jump off of this. I'm not sure the answer, but if you, so you just mentioned like the four to five and there's like little windows of di- different developments. Developmental stages, sure. So if a kid misses, hypothetically take COVID because two years, which was legitimate, you, you get rid of the social thing. And um, if you miss that, is it something that, like my initial thought would be like, yeah, it makes sense that you would just teach the kid it the following no. year. But there's, yeah, it's not em- that easy. Like empathy in this book, Born for Love. Mm-hmm. You know, they take kids that have been adopted from Russian orphanages into wonderful families. And they, 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 they go through some of the data on this. And empathetically, they're missing some switches. And you just can't. I mean, they're great people. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've become contributing members of society. But when you try and connect with that person on a certain level, you're like, what's going on with this person? Because you just didn't neurologically put those circuits together. Because remember, as many circuits that are coming together in the brain, mm-hmm. there's 
I don't want to say as many, but there's as much pairing away as possible that, that happens as well. People just think it's about the growth of neural connections, but it's not. It's the pairing away. And the ones that last, you know, as you get older um, are the ones that form you. <laughs> so it's kind of like the nat- natural selection of the brain cells? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and, and once you miss some of those things, I, I don't want to say it's impossible, but you'll meet some people in your life that didn't get some of the proper, um, I don't want to say interaction, but just, just just some of the proper human skills that you were just taught naturally to be polite, to be some of these things that you you, you get them in certain windows in your life. It's like what I was talking about play. Mm-hmm. If you disrupt some play cycles with rats, kittens have the same play cycle. If you disrupt their play cycles, they become so anxious that they can't be around other cats when they get older, which really makes you think because anxiety is at a record level today. Mm-hmm. Never before seen in our young people. It's dep- it's replaced depression now. And you wonder, like, we didn't allow that to develop properly in this kid. And now you can't just, you know, this kid's 13 now and is riddled with anxiety. Like, why? And we're, I've been talking to countless educators, every grade level, and we're all saying the same thing. I teach ninth grade, so my students basically missed middle school, which is when you kind of like figure yourself out, right? Yeah, those are important years. And it's yeah. like the beginning of this year was really awkward. They really did not know how to have conversations with everyone. We really had to practice that. I was talking to some educators last week who teach kindergarten who are struggling so hard because those kids – they missed out on being in the playground every single day for a couple of years. And now trying to teach those skills to them, it's it's something well, they've, their brain has moved on, but they have missed such, mm-hmm. such vital things. Well, I mean, at a, at a younger level, I was talking about my young kids, like my youngest was born January of 2021, which was way different than my oldest born December of 17. I mean, it's just, and I, we're seeing that there's just, some just a little bit different ways and how they've kind of um, just like small things where I'm like, I feel like, and I have nothing to, for a correlation, but I feel like this was a little different for him versus my oldest son. And just, and even in those two years, and I think as a human, like if I go back and I rewind and I say, okay, go back to January of 2020 to where I'm at now, a lot of things have changed in my life. But I said, I think I focused more internal in the last few years than I have external because I feel like naturally even as an adult there was those two years we were kind of uh, think things happen as an adult we just you know we, we lack the, the social communication and you know you're staying at home you're doing a lot of different things and like in the work and I think you know kind of the you know then you start getting to like the political climate and then you start getting into like societal things and just everything was just weird like it's just and it's kind of I feel like we're slowly kind of maybe kind of getting out of the uh, the, the snow globe being chucking up for a couple of years. But um, there's things that I notice even myself. I'm like, I'm more aware about certain things or, you know, it allowed maybe some time to reflect and sometimes to think, you know what, like I was good at that, but is that as important in my life now as this is? And then I, I found that I've pivoted I, and I've gotten better at certain things. I've gotten worse at certain, or, or you know, I've, I've improved in certain areas where I put the focus on and some things I've just kind of let slide. I'm like, you know what? That's not as important as it was maybe three years ago. Um, so I think that even as an adult that, you know, we still, and again, kind of going with the idea, um, 
you know the brain i mean i'm sure you guys do basically everything you've said for sure but like the brain doesn't stop developing until 25 and i remember hearing well, that it never stops developing i mean the plasticity of the brain that's the rapid growth and and uh, of the brain but is that when the the is it the prefrontal cortex what what's the one that finally forms where they say like most um adolescents they don't have the full function yeah, i would i would i would tell you that um we know the plasticity of the brain can change even into your 80s. It's just very hard. Mm -hmm. Before the age of 25, there's so much neural growth and synaptic um, expansion that or neural, not synaptic expansion, but that most of those synapses are formed very rapidly in those early years. It's why it's easy to do stuff because they're just not formed yet, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's not paired away yet. Um, but, you know, most people, they, it's more of a cliche to say the brain is fully developed at 25. Not really. We can force the brain. Like when you learn something new, mm -hmm. your brain is still growing. It's just that rapid expansion of those neur neurons that really start to drastically slow down at about the age of 25. So I I'm not trying to split no, but, hairs, but yeah, I'm just saying sense. that like now you can still learn a new skill which is you know you're you're developing new synapses in the brain it, it and i guess where i was going with that is i remember hearing that first term at 20 uh i was 27 when i heard about that and i remember thinking like that's that explains a lot yeah and, and a lot of it was more of like you said the soft skills the emotional skills where it's like i feel like i'm a little bit more clear-headed a little bit more aware you know a lot of these things i felt more in my late 20s than i did as a younger age mm -hmm. and i'm not far removed from that time period but when I look back, and even someone that's ten years, you know, my my junior, younger, I guess that's how you say it, ten years younger than me, um, I could still sit there and say like they're just they're gonna make decisions that aren't probably as rational as I would, mm -hmm. or as you guys, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit older than me would would have a little bit more rational thought. Um, Did you just say Heather was old? I was looking at you when I said <laughs> oh, that. Okay, that's what I thought. Wiser, I would say wiser, um, more experienced. So, but but I I would think that like you guys would feel the same way. It's like, as you get older, like certain things, your brain develops and you're always, I always try to be a better version of myself every day, every year, you, you try to get better. And I think that, you know, people, I think, I feel like most people try to do that. I don't know what the science is on that, but. Yeah, no, man, but think about all the old people you know that are just like this. Tunnel vision? Yeah, yeah. just the blinders are on and you're like, dude, this guy's never gonna get it. Like and and you know part I, of education is that way. You have yeah. an old school set of teachers that are just like, this is what kids need to learn. But that takes it back, right, to meeting the kids where they are, especially today. And I think every teacher needs to always remember, yeah, the kids might not respond the way that you want them to because the brain is not what what yours is. But so, especially now, my goodness, they're coming into class and they've been through something that you and I cannot imagine having gone through at their age. So Heather, I'm just, I'm looking at your years teaching. So for the amount of years for, for teaching purposes, have you been more like, I'm going to call it like mental elasticity. Like have, is you, are you more welcoming of ideas, more open to change more than you were when you were just starting out in the first couple of years? Oh, hundred percent. I think that's great. So you think you, you have grown yeah. and are better at that? I do. Yeah. Okay. Do you think that that's... Sometimes I think back and I'm like, man, like, I really wish I could have that batch of kids that I had that first year mm -hmm. and invite them back in the classroom and So do you think do you were more closed-minded back then or just lack of experience didn't give you... A... Oh, I don't think I was closed-minded. I still, I just was a newer version of myself. Okay. Um, 
But you've and always I been think open I was to always, ideas. Yeah, I was always trying to connect with the human part of, of the students. That, that's a personality trait. There, yeah. there's the, it's in the big five of personality traits, openness. So some people are just more open to new ideas, and some people just are not open to new ideas. And so, but but I hear what you're saying, and I I do believe that a lot of our educators, and this is tough to say because I, I, I believe in educators. I mean, I do with all my heart because I told you I think they're the most important people in America today. But as we were talking about one of your former educators, um, there's so many of them that just think that education needs to be the way it's always been. We're never putting that genie back in the bottle. Mm. Kids are, you can't just sit in front of a math class and teach a quadratic equation anymore. And those are fighting words because what I'm really doing is I'm attacking your significance, your meaning. Mm -hmm. And if you put 20 years into your education and teaching and all of a sudden in the blink of an eye, we're like, we're not teaching that way anymore. That's an attack on you. And a lot of teachers feel that as an attack, like, but the world's not the same anymore, man. We're in the, we're in that generation. I was telling you about the generational narcissism that Robert Greene talks about. We're just in a generation that are ready for this new revolution in education. So it's more, um, it's like an attack on the ego at the end, if you really strip it yeah. down. Sure, sure. Um, I, I, would, I would say the same thing. It's tough. If someone was mm -hmm. to, you know, I've been doing my profession for 13 years now. So if mm -hmm. someone was to say, like, you do it completely wrong and you're changing it, yeah. I would. You want me to give you a good example of that in your profession? Yeah. You're in real estate, right? Yeah. You know who Grant Cardone is? Yep. Never buy a house. He'll tell you never buy a house the biggest mistake you can make well i was gonna say because he i mean he goes more on like very much on the investment side of it he'll tell a single person single house don't buy a house one of the worst mistakes you can make oh yeah we, yeah so we start talking about doors and and how many yeah i don't I know where you're going with that one yeah um as a real estate person mm -hmm. if i were to tell you how long you've been in real estate 13 right yeah yeah no more single family house is a big mistake and then he starts telling you why. Mm -hmm. Because you think it's an asset. It's not an asset. It's not your asset. It's the bank's asset, number one. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. You're going to spend the next 30 years paying on this house, and you're going to be put into a prison. It's the American dream, we were told. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like putting your money in the bank. He also says, don't put your money in the bank. That's a horrible place to put your money. Mm -hmm. But you were trained by your parents to, if you have extra money, you should do what with it? Save it. Save it. Like, what a horrible thing to do. The, the banking system wants you to save your money, right? So they can loan it out. Every dollar you put in there, they loan it out 10 times. Your dollar. Now, now, yeah. what you're feeling right now, because I can see it on you a little bit. I is, actually want to throw Yes, keep going. But but what I'm, what I'm seeing is that plasticity of your brain and the neurons are like, no, I was taught to sell a house and convince people it's the American dream. And, you know, you got to and you can afford it now. And you, you worked really hard for your money. But you're essentially just renting and you're going to fill your house with a whole bunch of crap and all your parent, your kids are going to fight over it and probably dissolve half of their relationship when you die because like, I'm just saying it's a different way of thinking. It's hard to think that way. So you know what's funny? So when you said that, like my, my initial thought is actually, I agree with what you're saying. Mm. So I don't, I don't fight it. But, but if you go back to like what you're trained to do and I kind of. You know, you have like, a, and there's some good things, you know, about home ownership. I mean, you go from an investment standpoint. Like what? 
well, I look at like if you own a property versus um, let's say rent, because you have two options basically, you rent or you own. If you own a property, you have the level of you own it, you get to do what you want with it. Now, yes, are you paying it off to the bank? Do you still owe taxes? I mean, even if you pay it off, you still owe taxes. I mean, there's always that. I look at that from a, from a home perspective, like I own my own home. I like the fact that I own my own home. I don't have Why? neighbors. Huh? Just, you no, can rent so, a place and not have neighbors. Well, it's true, but I said from a, no, from a single family perspective, if I own, if I own, a, so perfect example, I own this building. So this building, I have tenants that own the building. You're talking more commercial. That that's well, where... even but even it's the idea of like as a, a owner versus someone that's that's renting. If I was renting a property, there's it's kind of the reason I work for myself. If I was renting a property, I have to ask a landlord, "Can I make alterations to the building? Can mm. I do this? Can I do that?" I think I've always been one. I I don't like answering to people, not in a bad way, but like I just if I want to go take a vacation, I want to take a vacation. If I want to. If I, know, I don't feel good, I don't want to ask someone, can I take a sick day? I'm just going to take, I don't feel good. I'm going to stay home and, and, you know, I look at that the same thing. Like if I want to paint the walls, if I want to remove shrubs, if I want to tear down an old barn or an old outbuilding, I can do that from a control standpoint. I also think from a home ownership, I don't look at my house as an investment. And I think that's what most people would say right. is I don't look at the house as like, it's not making me money. This building's making me money. Mm. My house is not making money. It's no a liability. Money, yeah. It's a complete liability. I'm paying on it. I'm going to pay on it to the day I die in the form of taxes. But I do like the fact that I can make 100% of the decisions on the property versus having to answer, say, if you're my sure. landlord, hey, Tom, can I XYZ sure. make some alteration? Um, or, you know, and this obviously taxes are, are an issue with this, but, you know, if you said, hey, Galen, I'm raising your rent. Nobody's really calling me and saying I'm raising the value of your property. I mean, you can get the taxes, but there's more... Um, you know, there, there's a little bit of, of the same there, but I don't think it's as like, you can't really kick me out of my house unless I don't pay where if I'm a tenant, I can be like, Hey, you're great. I'm going to kick you out. And you can do that. So, I mean, I like the, the act. Not aspect. in California or New York. <laughs> there's, yes, but, but listen, yes. so listen, shelf the real estate thing for a mm-hmm. sec. Yeah. And you had, now you're in a very unique position because you're 33. Yep. Yeah. Right. You're 33. Mm-hmm. So you're a little bit more open to the concept of what I'm talking about. And this Correct. is why so many young people like Grant Cardone's work mm-hmm. because they're more open to this concept because they want the freedom to be able to travel and pack up and leave. And what's the difference if I rent here or I own here? Mm-hmm. I can't move. You're more flexible renting. Right. Yep. And, and a lot of young people want that flexibility. But if, we, if I had the same conversation with your dad, I mean, he might argue with chance. Ray about it. Right. I, I mean, I don't know. But I'm just, yeah. but but I guess overall, and we'll, we'll shelf the real estate thing. Yeah. But the the point is, educators, they have fallen into this trap, and and you don't find a lot of educators that have 20 years of experience in Heather's shoes that are willing to be open to some of the new challenges that young people have because you're like, well, I went through it. Why can't they figure it? Well. Mm. They just don't have those same well, skills. Just like in real estate, you have a little bit different skill set from your father's skill set when it comes to real estate yeah. and maybe his belief system. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're battling here is this belief system, right? And the belief system is nothing but a set of neurological structures in your brain that you can't unwind. You believe them. Yeah, and I think, and I th- and I do agree um, with what you're saying in the sense of staying real estate just for a little bit longer but this 
you know, the idea is that if I, I'm thinking of from a collective, most people would argue on that. And I think, and I see it in my own industry, people, and now is there an appreciation aspect of, of owning your own property? Absolutely. Is there um, an idea of building up equity versus 100% going to rent? Like 100%, if I paid a landlord, 100% out of my pocket. At least, you know, you know, you get the idea if you do build up some equity, you do have some long-term situation. But I've seen people- That you're going to have when you're 85 and your kids have if, your equity and- yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that also depends on how fast, you know, obviously playing into the factor of like how quick can you pay your mortgage off and how fast can you, you avoid interest. And I, so I do think there's a level of investment on it. I do not, I would not look at my property and this is my mindset. I don't buy my house for the fact that I'm trying to buy it as an investment. I look at it as this is where I want to raise my family. This is the area I want. This is whatever the amenities might be. I'm not looking at it as like, this is a massive investment. I'm like, when can I pay this mortgage down so I don't have the interest and I can, you know, then can start putting money elsewhere. When I buy um, an investment property, my mindset's the exact opposite. Dollar cents, like, okay, I'm making cash flow. And like my brain's different, but I'm buying that investment vehicle. But I agree, a single family home, I never look at, there's a slight investment to it, but it's not enough to make me feel right. that it's investment. Right, right. Um, but back to out of real estate, back to teaching. <laughs> I like that though. But, I like but it's just neat because we've developed this entire framework and structure that you have spent the last 20 years of your life developing. Yeah. 13, 14 years of your life developing. And now all of a sudden, here's the, here's the point. Like that, we changed it with COVID, with mm -hmm. education. And now, talk about teachers struggling. Like, you're just going to change the entire structure that I have. But I don't think I would have gave that same answer five years ago. You know what I mean? I mean you know what I mean? Like I, I just grow like when you're young and you're I started when I was twenty. You're I mean, a millennial. You're yeah, on the, you're on the edge, right? Yep, very but, and, and here's what Robert Green says. And here's what Robert Green says. You got these four generations alive at one time. We're moving into the revolutionary generation, which yep. is this <laughs> Z generation. They will revolutionize everything in our history. What Robert Green says is the millennials, you will be the one to bridge the gap. Not the wise, not me. Because yeah. of because of your thinking right now, you just told me the the answer I think Robert Green would give right now. He would say, You're on the edge of pulling these two generations together. Somebody has to, mm -hmm. or we're gonna have total anarchy. And what he believes is, and, and it's in this book, The Laws of Power, um, that your generation, because of what you just said to me, I wouldn't have thought that way five years ago. You're willing to bridge that gap. And that's the educator that we need today that's willing to bridge those gaps. And really the structure of education has not changed in 50 years. So maybe this is a gift, what has happened in the past few years. What an opportunity to force us to make a shift that education has really needed for far many more years. So Heather, I'm gonna kind of put you in the spot here. Um, you know, and you've been teaching now for 20 plus years and, and have seen the structure. Like you said, you've lived mm -hmm. that structure for the same, that entire amount of time. Um, how, how do you think, should the structure remain the same? Should it be completely shaken up? I mean, Tom talked about two hours of play. Kids aren't getting two hours of play in their mm -hmm. no, normal day. I also think, um, I look at this in the business space and life space that the idea of like white time or, you mm -hmm. know, white space mm -hmm. where you just have... There's no calendar. Like, it's just mm -hmm. it's free time. Mm -hmm. um, do you think, like, how do you, what do you think it should stay the same? What what changes would you make? Where do you think, like, from what we have now, how would you tweak the current model? Would you leave it the same? Oh, I would change it completely. So what, what would be, <laughs> if, if, if we, like, you're the U.S. Department Head of 
education, I don't know, whatever, the secretary of mm-hmm. education. Um, and you could, you know, have your, like, hey, here's here's your curriculum. You're going to make mm-hmm. everything for all the students. What do you think the best way to go about that would be? And what would be your goal as an educator? Because I'm, I'm curious as to this, too, because people are like, I'm teaching children. But, like, mm-hmm. what is the goal that mm-hmm. someone in education right now that you believe is the right thing? And where do you think the masses are from, like, if I ask a teacher, what's your what's your goal every yeah. day when you go to school? I I would start by thinking about what are what are those characteristics that you want to see in humans when they're in their twenties. You want to see someone who's willing to you know be courageous. You want to see someone who's willing to think outside the box. You want to see someone who has really good interpersonal skills, right? Um, but I would think of the whole structure of school like. Let's think about teenagers. Are they really ready to think and sit down to a math problem at 7.45, 8 in the morning? They're not. So I would think about the time of day. I would think about how students learn, and especially at a younger age. You know, Tom talks all the time about play, about movement. And what do students do? Could you sit in a building and just change classes every 40 minutes and just sit in a chair? I struggle with that when we have a conference day to I'm sit for too, a couple hours. I'm way too fidgety. Yeah. So, but we expect them, right? And and we get upset if they are fidgety, or we get upset if you know it's the middle of the day and they're just not paying attention. Well, they've been sitting for four hours, and you know, just thinking about the human side of them far more than what I've been trained to do, and and that's where the difficulty is, right? Educators have put in so much time and effort, and they are amazing professionals, and they're so good at what they teach and what they do, but now you're throwing this other component in, and and they feel so frustrated, and, and they don't know what to do, and this is, this is where they just feel like nobody's listening to them. They feel like they're not listened to by admin. They feel like, you know, I've got to get through so much content, and they're they're frustrated with that. They're like, I've got a test that I have to give, and these students, you know, they got to have a certain score, and that's gonna it's all going to be on my name. That's that's where educators are coming. Do you from. think? Um, I'm not going to let you off the hook because I want to have some changes. But the yeah. the idea of like standardized testing, mm-hmm. like what's your thoughts on standardized testing? I don't like it. Okay, I mean, I I, I don't. As a kid, I was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Everybody takes mm-hmm. a test, and I've gotten older. I'm like, that's probably no. the dumbest thing that you mm-hmm. could do is have kids do a standardized test because mm-hmm. again, every kid's different, and every kid excels exactly. in different things. If I take a math, I might be great at math. Mm-hmm. I was I was pretty good at math. I wasn't very good at English. Mm-hmm. I, I was a terrible at science. Like my science scores knowing going in, like if I pulled a B in science, I was pumped. Mm-hmm. If I pulled a B in math, I would have been upset at myself because my expectations were different, but that everybody's a little bit different where like, but if I'm taking the same as, you know, another student's going to get an A in science and I'm nowhere near it, my a worse off student, well, I may not be good at, as well in science, but maybe like you said, do I understand the concept of it mm-hmm. and I could explain it very fluently and un- understand it, but my actual grades aren't good. Or do I understand the concept, but I can't articulate it enough to actually right. pull the grade out? Um, I guess back to the changes, like how, what do you think, what's some low hanging fruit changes that you think should be made in the education system right mm. now? Just the, it seems like we have the emphasis completely backwards. Um, you know, we talked about meeting the students where they're at. And I don't know if, if widespread, we're really doing that. Um, like regarding, the, oh, go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. Um, regarding like you have your core classes mm-hmm. and I'm going to go, I'm going to go high school level mm-hmm. because elementary is a little bit different, but you have your you know, history, you have your science, your math. Um, you know, uh, if you were to take 
those is it important to learn all those still is it are there things more important now than understanding mm-hmm. history or understanding math or understanding you know i mean you see I like think, no of, i certainly think there's value in in all different subject areas um but i would like to see students being given the opportunity to be more self-reflective um i ask students all the time you know what would you like in your school day if we had the time and space for it and so many of them in ninth grade they go back to they're like we want recess we want a break in our day. Or we just want a space where we can be listened to, where we can talk about the things going on and, and not have to walk into class and just have to do academics. I think they have a lot to say and don't feel heard. So, so there was some science I, I read on that the a normal person, this is an adult, this is or this is a human, this is not a child or anything mm-hmm. like that, the max amount of time they can focus, like truly focus before they just tapped out depleted mm-hmm. of energy, um, is four hours mm-hmm. and four hours meaning mm-hmm. and that could be us sitting in the podcast that could be us reading a book or literature or whatever but you look at the average school time frame it's what eight hours typically mm-hmm. um, not only that it's this it's you're like you said you're sitting down doing a topic onto the next thing sitting down doing a topic onto the next thing switching classes moving around where it's very regimented um one of the things that I've researched a lot and, and really f- kind of found interesting and I'm still grappling with it and how to best apply it in my life is the idea of like less is more. Like mm-hmm. you, you don't need more, 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 more um, that can you simplify your life? Can you simplify and prioritize the things that matter most instead of just trying to do everything? Yeah, that's and so I, powerful. And that was something that I used to struggle with was I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And now I'm to the point where like I can't do it, I can't do it. And a lot of this had to do with the anxiety of like I can do it all. And I now it now I was like, oh my God, now my my plate is so full, but I know I can't do it. But instead mm-hmm. I'm gonna, you know, drown my energy and and go beyond that, burn the candle at both ends to try to take care of all these tasks. Mm-hmm. Instead of just saying, you know what, I can do three of those twenty things, but I'm gonna do them really well mm-hmm. and I'm gonna give myself plenty of time and I'm gonna go deep on that and I'm gonna, you know, really hammer that out versus kind of doing everything at a very, you know, kind of uh, just below the surface level, but not going super deep on it. Like I, my my thought would be like if, if kids started school later, ended school earlier, but really took those hours so you condense the, the day mm-hmm. and you left more time early for play, you left more time at the end of the day for play, you had a little break in the middle for play, yep. but the kids were well-rested. We talk, I mean, again, you were athletics. I'm sure your recovery and your sleep and your nutrition was just as important, if not more important, than the actual time in the gym. Yeah, all of that. Gym is 10%. Yeah. It, Rest is about 30%, 40%, and nutrition is 40 or 50%. Yeah, and, and I think, but if you go to the kids and say, like, we're just going to train you, train yeah. you, train you, train you, versus saying, you know what, why don't you go play? Why don't you take, a, yeah. why don't you take some time just to, like, read a book? Why don't you mm-hmm. take time just to, not on your phones, sit down and have a discussion, or whatever it might be, but I think that... Um, I think if you start doing, I, th- I think the idea of having less academic time, taking more off time, and I think you fill the off time with a couple things, that white that white space where they can go do a hobby, they can go do something they want. If it's a sport, if it's, you know, they want to learn to play an instrument or, or paint, go do that. I also think going out and experiencing time with, you know, whether it's your family or friends, like whether it's a trip or whether it's just going to, you know, in our area, going to like Point of Rush and going and just going on the trails or going hiking a mountain, like versus sitting there like cramming your head in a book because you get to have the academic side. And I think one of the, um, Tom, you said you were in philosophy, right? You were a philosophy major? Minor, yeah. Or minor. Uh, but the, Psychology one of, major. Or psychology major. So one of the things I know they've talked a lot about with like philosophy is the idea that 
most of the time back in this was you know probably thousands of years ago now there was a lot more just rest during the day mm -hmm. there's a lot more you know they they thought very hard and then they mm -hmm. rested very hard kind of mm -hmm. like play hard or you know work hard play hard but rest hard also um and i had a mentor of mine once he said to me he goes and i'm still struggling with this he goes galen you you, you seem like you work really hard I'm like i try to you know and he, he goes i bet you when you go to work you 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 know put your all into work you don't take a lot of time to rest you just go 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 and i'm like yeah and i said so, you know, you do that, what, typically Monday through Friday. And he goes, I said, yeah, he goes, do you ever really let rest kind of creep into your work week? And I go, I mean, sparingly, you know, if I want to try to cut out and go skiing or golf or do something that's kind of like play. But, you know, you know, most of the time it's, you know, pretty regimented and go at it. He goes, okay, so he goes on weekends when you're not really supposed to work, why would you let work creep in? Which mm -hmm. I'm guilty of. Saturday, Sunday, you mm -hmm. start just all of a sudden a little break in time. Kids are taking a nap or you know, pop That's over the computer, point. do some work. But he goes, if you're going to go all in during the week and you're already talking five out of seven days, he goes, how come on those two days you just don't rest? Like you just, he goes, mm -hmm. you don't have to do anything. He goes, go for a walk. He goes, read a book. He goes, watch a show, hang out with your family. He goes, just why, why are you stressing your brain out more? He goes, just hit a, hit a pause and reset. And I think most people, what they said, like I went on vacation, did nothing, come back refreshed. Mm -hmm. And I'm guilty of this. So I do not, I, I'm kind of scolding myself on this, but if I was to go home on the weekend and just completely hit the pause button and just say, I'm doing from, you know, end of the day, Friday to beginning of the day, Monday, I'm just hanging out. I have no expectations. I have mm -hmm. no projects. I have nothing to work on. I'm not going to stress my brain out. I always seem like I have more enjoyment. I always seem like I have more, um, uh, what, what's the word? Um, randomness I, I, there's a better word for that but randomness in my day in a good way meaning things just it's like a planning for like if you're planning for an event or a vacation and you plan on and plan on and plan on, and all of a sudden this vacation gets larger than life it's hard to live up to that expectation when it actually happens but if you're you know if tom called me and was like hey you want to go to the game tonight and i'm like well i was just going to go home and do nothing tonight now all of a sudden my expectations i had none so anything that we do is going to exceed my expectations mm -hmm. um and i think that's almost uh, the idea of just if you go home and have no expectations and just let the days kind of come up, you typically come back Monday. Like, Man, I had a great weekend. Like, what did you do? I'm like, I, we just randomly did this and that and that, but we took zero plan, zero structure, and allowed that just to kind of happen, you know, organically turn into something, which a lot of times does include the play factor. And I, I, I think those are those are some of the best moments that I can think of, especially with the family and with um, just myself. It's like the the non structured completely randomized things that just popped up and you took advantage of and you're like you kind of just opened your mind to just um you know life just to take shape and not be like okay i gotta do this i gotta do this i gotta do this i gotta you know, like at this time at this place and you just kind of went with the flow i i do get more energy out of that so i think like students having more of that in the day where maybe they can still be at school but like you said go on the playground maybe it's you know we have a an event or maybe it's just hey we're going to work on a hands-on project that has to do with english but let's mm -hmm. i don't know let's do something that they're never going to test on in new york state mm -hmm. but it's creative and your your problem solving skills and brain skills go through the roof because you're thinking outside the box and your cognitive ability goes through the you know gets improved because you are you know you might tell them like hey here's a theme what's our theme we're going to talk mm -hmm. about today and what's that mean to you i don't know whatever but you yeah. pick some random topic um, and and then that's the powerful part about educating when you can when you can do that, right? But imagine but if they, every they student block had you that in, where in you there, can't, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, how, do you agree with any of that? Yeah, there, there's there's literature that that talks about this. You know, there has been you know studies 
um, I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but I, I've read several things on, you know, when you have that break, um, you know, the, the, some of the, the best human body growth happens when you're resting, right? Yeah. I mean, that's when your body produces growth hormones and testosterone and things like that in that first 90 minutes of sleep a lot of the time. But cognitively, but I, the thing that I liked that you touched on was that creativity time and that, that unstructured time that allows the brain to go where it wants to go. And that leads to some of the greatest growth, you know, and, and it was Edward Desi and Richard Ryan 30 years ago, they came up with self-determination theory. And really at the end of the day, I, I, I think a little bit differently about education. I kind of hold it very close to my chest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, but self-determination theory, there was a sub theory under it called BPNT, basic psychological needs, not to be confused by, Maslow's hierarchy of motivational needs. Everybody knows that one. Mm-hmm. But this didn't really take off, but I think Richard Ryan and Edward Desi hit the nail on the head, and they said in order that the basic psychological needs that humans need is autonomy. And we don't allow kids to have that autonomy to think freely um, and determine their own future. We impose it on kids mm-hmm. constantly because we want to live vicariously through our kids, right? It's like, again, I don't want to just default back to sports, but... That's the great lesson of youth sports. It's more about dad's mm-hmm. significance than it is the kids. Because you want your kid to feel the same glory that you felt. Or, or maybe you didn't get a chance, but your kid's got some talent and you want to live through them. And it's a horrible thing to do to a child. Uh, but we do it as parents all the time. I was with a dad once and his, um, he was standing with his daughter and he goes, I said, what do you want to do? Because I always ask kids what, what their interests are, especially in front of their parents because I, I wait to see if they do a quick little glance at their mom or dad um, for approval. And the dad's like, she's like, I want to cut hair. And the dad right in front of me was like, you can do more than that, sweetie. And I looked at him and I said, I said, bro, I got a friend of mine that makes literally, this is a true story, makes millions of dollars cutting hair. Mm-hmm. He's got like 12 salons. And I said, you mean she's too good for that, dad? Oh, no, that's not what I meant. Well, that's what... Mm-hmm. She thinks that's what she believes and feels that you don't want her to do that. And do you remember when you were a young real estate agent? You had to sell your first house. You didn't just sell a whole book of houses. No. You sold one house. So this young lady's got to get one chair. And she's got to start cutting hair. Mm-hmm. And that leads to step two in this basic psychological needs, which is competence. You're not just competent. You have to have the autonomy to try and to fail and to you know, develop those skills. And that leads you to a feeling of competence, which that you want to feel competent. Heather wants to feel competent. Every kid wants to feel competent. Unfortunately, we snatch that away from them. Let me do it for you, buddy. Mm-hmm. Bad idea. Don't ever do something for a kid or an old person that they could do themselves. Like that's a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, the third part of that is relatedness. And you've got to surround yourself with people that do what you like to do, the path that you're on. And, and that's just the basic psychological needs for any human. And I think Edward Desi and Richard Ryan nailed it. And if you kind of couple that with, I was talking about um, um, Benjamin Bloom. You know, he talked about I talked about these three domains of learning. But he also, and this is what I would weave into education if I could, he talked about mastery for learning or learning for mastery. Um, I think they changed the name. But he said any person, especially children, could learn anything if you allowed them to use their learning style and gave them enough time 
And unfortunately, in compulsory education, the bell rings and you're in art class and the bell rings and you're like, okay, put it away, boys and girls. Mm -hmm. What a horrible thing to do Mm -hmm. to this little mammal that's in love with art. Put it away. It's not that important anymore. Math is more important. Let's pull that out. Why would you do that? Right? If, If the kid likes art, why don't you shape their education around art? If the kid likes cars, why don't you shape their math, science, history, reading around cars? Like, if they need to learn something else, they can. Wasn't it Einstein that said, um, he said something about if you can write it down or you can read it, there's no need to memorize it. Hmm. And that's what they have today. They don't need to know all this stuff. But we are still trapped in this paradigm of, no, they got to learn what I learned in school. Why? Well, I think kind of back to like standardized testing and things. If you if you're memorizing, I, I did this all the time. I would take tests. Yeah. I would learn to pass the test. Yeah. And then I guess what? It's out of my brain. Yeah. And I think the, the negative about that, I mean, the benefit for kids nowadays is you have Google in your pocket. But back then, we learned, and I felt a lot of that. It, it, and again, now I'm kind of like reflecting for the first time on this. If we took all the time we did to memorizing stuff that we, I have no clue what it is now. I don't know how to, I don't know the terms of a cell. I used to know them for a test one time in biology. You know, if I spent all that time doing art that I love doing, could I now have a career in art or bigger appreciation or could now I have become an art teacher to now share my, mm-hmm. you know, my but love. You'd, of t- but you'd have joy in your life. hundred percent. Right. That's right. what's lacking in education is the joy. Actually, can you speak more on that? Yeah. We, on, we, on the on the joy of not just ki- not kids, but on educators because, do you, and Heather, you might um, speak more on this. Do you find that there's, People in education right now that went into education for a couple things is one, they didn't really have an idea of what to do when they're mm-hmm. familiar with the teaching profession. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because I almost became a teacher because my mom was a teacher for 30 something <laughs> years. Um, I decided against it, but that was one of the top things. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm just looking at a camera right now. Like, I actually love, you know, photography and camera and, you know, and cinematography more than I did that. I never even, I didn't even know that was a profession. Mm-hmm. At 18 years old, I knew a teacher was because my mom was a teacher. Do you find that some teachers go into teaching and then find that hey, I spent five years getting a master's. Now I'm in, you know, I got a state retirement plan. I have, I'm kind of on a path to for um, uh, to die. Yeah. Well, basically, but, <laughs> and but, they just they're they're burned out, and they. But it's also not something they actually like to do, and that they yeah. just feel they can't get off the ride kind of yeah, deal. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many yeah. teachers walking into their classroom every day who have no joy to be there, who the night before, like, they, they dread going to work dread, the next day. Yeah. Here's the way I frame it always with educators. If I have 100, I do big conferences with teachers. I say, how many of you played teacher growing up? Hmm. About 75% of them will put their hands in the air. Mm-hmm. Those teachers have joy when they come to work every day. You can't stop it. Because in, in the great book, Play, P-L-A-Y, you have kids. You should put that on your list. It's by Stuart Brown. He's a great scientist. And he's where I steal a lot of stuff from. Uh, but he says that when you tie your play history, do you even know what your play history is? Do you even know what your play personality is? He talks about the 12 great play personalities, right? Like, you know any collectors in your life? Of anything? Collectors, yeah. Cars, yeah. Book, comic books. Right. Yeah. Th- that's You can't unwind that. Your whole life you will be a collector. You know any explorers in your life? Mm-hmm. People that like to travel. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, it's woven into their fabric of their being, this play personality. And he goes through 12 different play personalities. And they're not exclusive. You might be a collector and an explorer. There's directors. My daughter Abigail growing up, her, she's 25 today. 
you you I can hear it in my brain constantly. Isabel, say this. Isabel, do that. Isabel, do this. Isabel, say that. She directed her daughter, her sister every day. She's a general manager of a restaurant today. She has 70 employees. Then most of them are old enough to be her mom or dad. But she's a director. Mm -hmm. She tied her play personality to her adult life. When you do that, you find joy. When you tie your play personality and your play history to your adult life. Okay? We stop kids from doing that. And we say, oh, you can do more than that. You're better than that. Better than what brings joy into my life. So when you talk to teachers, you go to the other 25%. Mm -hmm. And typically, a lot of them are like 12 years, yep. six hours, three minutes, and uh, five seconds left. And I, when they do that, and they look at their watch and they do that, I always say, oh, you never played teacher growing up. Hmm. And then I pause. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no. They settled on teaching. Like, you almost did. Right? And then you wouldn't have found joy. You would have drug yourself to work every day and you couldn't i'm not saying you didn't enjoy it and you didn't have good moments but you didn't find joy and that's where education needs to be steered to mm -hmm. is self-determination what does this kid like to do but that's too scary for our system right because you can't just process them all like chickens but that would be the goal going back to your question of reinventing school today what would the number one goal be that every student finds their joy because if they find it, especially in those high school years, they're going to know which path to take once they once they graduate high school. And so many don't because it's like cookie cutter, like education well, for and them. I, and I, the reason I say that is at 18 years old, I'm a legal adult and going off to college. Mm -hmm. I have no clue what I want to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and which blows my mind, which I think, and it kind of, then, and then this crazy thing is now you go to college and take two more years of gen ed, which is the same stuff you took right. in high school, maybe a couple tweaks. But to me, it's like, if you took, and this is my thought process, as a young kid, you add the play, you add the creativity, what do you like to do? Mm -hmm. You figure it out at a pretty young age. And then when instead of going into college and figuring out what you want to do, you should be like going into junior high, being like, yeah. I kind of really like the math. And then can you structure the kid where maybe you're like, you can have a little bit of, you know, well-roundedness so you're not like completely uh, you, you gotta know, know how to read and write and stuff yeah, like, and, like that. you should know some history you should know science yeah. and things but you know if you're like really big into history you should know the basics of science but really at the end of the day let's not go into you know high level calculus of math or physics and right. stuff when you just know the general idea of what science is and then turn like simple machines mm -hmm. and just basic stuff like that but then you're like, okay, you really like math. Like, here's all the cool stuff you can do with math that's not a math teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can build rockets that are going to Mars yeah. if you're, you know, you like math. Yeah. But you could be some kid that like, oh my God, I hate that. But I want to, you know, lead a team yeah. of, you know, as a general manager as a, at a restaurant that I'm sure most kids at a young age are like, you know what? I don't, I didn't play general manager restaurant. But when they get old enough and they're like, you know what? This is like you said the play. She's a director. It's that theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that theme. And it's like, you know what? This is a way that I can express that, that play play personality is, yeah and this is this is my this is my easel or my paintbrush mm -hmm. is now is is a restaurant and mm -hmm. that's how i get to express it yeah. yeah and if you ask any 14 year old today and i've done this in great conversations with my students this year i can think of each of my students and tell you right now what they love to do outside of school that if they were not sitting in school what would they do we just we just talked about it the other day you know i know that i've got this one boy who loves to bake on the weekends then mm. another girl she loves to do hair and they were telling, they're like, wouldn't it be great if we had a class where I could practice cosmetology or, you know, if I could bake, you know, in the middle of my school day. 
and just do the those are i have no doubt they're all going to end up in professions or, or even having the kid that likes to love. bake be able to host like a little group thing where he yeah. leads a baking class mm-hmm. you know just gets to express it and show his friends like hey yeah. this is and all of a sudden now another buddy likes to bake but students it, know in ninth grade they know what they're passionate about already Really, there's there's not much I don't think that's going to shift. Is there a way that you mind? can bring that into the current system? They, or they, you... they are. Yeah, I mean there are there there's a lot of that going on mm-hmm. in different occupational centers and and stuff like that. To me, it just happens too late. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think they should be introduced. You know, at, you know, almost in single digits, maybe around 10, 11, 12. Remember, before before the age of ten, there's there's no real discovery of meaning. Right. I mean, there is, and it's in play. You find your meaning in play, and you try different roles, and you figure stuff out. But you only really need to belong before the age of ten. But you know, Viktor Frankl talked about this, and he said that meaning comes in three forms. And the first form of meaning in your life came when you were about eleven, twelve, thirteen, and you know, you got your first instrument. You you really got involved in your first sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe you even got your first little job. That gives kids a lot of meaning, and. Um, and that's the beauty of of identifying as your kids get older. Your job as a parent is to two things: to model acceptance, to show them how to accept people that are different. That's mm-hmm. a hard thing to do because it's easy to complain about your neighbor that his car touched your your driveway, and you're and then your kid gets to school and somebody's piece of tape touches their locker, and they're like. Well, they're just modeling what you're doing, and then you want the kid to be nice to someone, and you're like, dude, be nice to that kid. All they ever saw was you complain about the neighbor. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they complain about the person next to them? Duh. Yeah. But the other thing is, you know, your job is is to figure out what your kid's significance is, what they want it to be, and not yours. And dads screw that up worse than anybody. Mom screw it up on the collegiate front because she wants her daughter to go to college in the worst way, mm-hmm. right? Because it's going to make her really, really proud to go tell her friends that, oh, my daughter got into Yale. Oh, my gosh. And I'm not poking fun at this, but like, it's like the, the bumper sticker parents. Yeah, like yeah. like there's like yeah. why are you send your kid to college? Um, I don't know because it's the right thing. Mm. Okay, if you say so. I told my kids not to go to college. I just said, don't yeah. waste your time mm-hmm. when you want to go. And I have one kid that's putting herself through college right now. I didn't tell her to go to college. She just knows what she wants to do, mm-hmm. and she's got to get a degree to do it. But if you don't need to get a degree, why, why would you do it? Well, again, I, it's a per- perfect example. So real estate, you don't need a degree in real estate. You can take a course. It's beautiful. I, yeah. Well, I, but I went to college. I got a four-year degree at Plastic State. But I halfway through college, I knew I wasn't going to do what I was getting the degree in. But, of course, 18, 19, 20 years old, I'm like, well, I'm halfway through. Might as well finish. I'm probably not going to come back. Did your parents pay for it? They did. So this is what happened. My parents go... We're going to give you X amount of money. I was a weird kid. So my parents go, we're going to give you X amount of money. You're still weird. I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that, I, that's fine. Um, if, <laughs> I actually like I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here this long because you, you're kind of fascinatingly weird. I, I, uh, I, no, I, I agree. I actually agree with you. Um, but what I was saying is my parents said, you, we'll give you X to go to college. You can go to any college in the world that you want, but we're going to give you X. My brain was like, okay, what's the cheapest route I can go so I don't have student debt? <laughs> So I went to Plattsburgh. I stayed at home. I had I had like money to go live on campus. And I was like, well, if I live on campus, then I'm actually spending more money if I just stayed at home. So I ended up, I remember one time my dad was like, oh. So wait, you got a bunch of money from your parents that was supposed to go to school and you just kept it? No. Yeah, actually, you want a f- funny story about my first apartment with it? 
That's awesome. Yeah. So on it today. But um, what, I, what I'm saying is, you, 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 that was brilliant. Like to take, like I told my kids, I'm not giving you a dime for college. Go figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. I paid for my degree and my wife's. Go figure it out. I, you, I'm not giving you any money. Mm-hmm. Figure it out. But what's brilliant about what you did was you took that money and you invested it. Yeah. And that right there, speaking about Grant Cardone, he is like, he dogs the American education system because kids walk out and they don't even know how to balance a checkbook. Mm-hmm. And so he thinks that all education should be learning how to set goals, learning how to invest, learning th- about cash flow and other things like that. But it's kind of neat that you had intuitively, but you also probably had a dad that invested too. Well, I mean, I won't give you my whole background, but like, I just, it was actually funny the first time, and I've said this before on the podcast, but I had a teacher, we'll go back to education, my senior year, again, I'm set, probably seventh first semester, I was 17 at the time, I'm in a soci, uh, sociology class. He gets up, he starts doing a lot of stuff with sociology, which I thought was fascinating. I didn't even know what sociology was when I signed up for the class. I'm just like, I don't know, it's like, I, I know a lot of seniors sign up for it, so I'm going to sign up for it. Um, and I was fascinated by it. I still use it to this day with, with like marketing and things in my business. Um, but he spent about three weeks, and this was towards the end, the middle of the year, um, going over investment, you know, different investment vehicles. He went over different retirement vehicles, he, different um, insurance things. I have, again, I'm 17 turning 18. I was probably 18 actually at this time. So I'm right about the point where I'm an illegal adult about to go out into the real world in, as a college student away from the, you know, the walls of, of my high school. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And and so I looked at that. I'm like, okay. So I ended up getting a book. And my, I think my dad gave it to me, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is like a classic. Kiyosaki. Mm-hmm. Yep, Robert Kiyosaki. I read that book. And I was like, that go back to the asset liability thing. I was like, oh. And he talks about it right in there. He goes, your home's not an asset. It's a liability. So I remember thinking that at 17, 18 years old. So I opened my first retirement account at 19 years old. I remember mm-hmm. I took ice cream money that I saved up. Most kids would have blown the money. I took all the money from my, not all of it. I took, um, I had to pay for gas with college. And it was back in 08 when gas was were like 450. So, but I ended up taking, you know, probably 30% of what I earned that year. And I dumped it mm-hmm. into a retirement account at 19. And I, but I did that on a whim because a teacher taught me about that. Now, had I not taken that, I don't know. I mean, things happen for a reason. I could have went to college all of a sudden, been completely unknown or not known the financial system. And, but it ended up kind of giving me a love of like finance and money and, and business and things. And I, you know, I've read hundreds of books since then. Um, but that was kind of what sparked it. So like, yes, I was a little different, but I had, luckily that was put in front of me at 17 and I was wise enough to like take that in. But that should have been like required reading, in my opinion, at like fourteen. Not I just got for it. for the kids yeah. that were interested in that kind of stuff. Correct, but but I yeah. also do yeah. agree with you. I think that because our our economy is the way it's driven, mm-hmm. you better understand cash flow and you better understand yes. those kind of things. Because if not, you find yourself in debt. Which mm-hmm. it was Lincoln or someone that said we will be ushered into a, a generation of peaceful slavery. Mm. Which he was talking about debt. Yeah, because you're just a slave to your debt, and I think. That that's one thing the system won't ever break on is because we need people slaved to this debt and the you just control them. Yeah, you just control them. Um, no, I no fully. I, I uh, so I don't want to take too much more of your time because I do have a couple questions towards the end. I want to wrap sure. this up because you got you got a long trip back to uh, the great state of Vermont. No, no, no. We're at we're at uh, Peru all week. Oh, you are. Oh, perfect. Um, so first off. 
that shirt. Yeah. I've seen it before. You're wearing it. I was just told I don't think you've taken that shirt off. First off, how many how many of those shirts do you own? Just one you want to smell it. No, I trust you. I trust you. It's, um, a, great, it's a good story. So tell me the story on the free hug shirt. Yeah. I really actually do want to know how many shirts you have of yeah. this. You had a hoodie. I've seen it. I actually saw this, I want to say, two two years ago maybe, maybe a little bit longer. And I was like, the free hug guy. I'm like, oh, okay. And it was actually, I didn't know you were the free hug guy until like this yeah. started to trans- work out. And yeah. I saw it. I was like, oh, it's the one and the same. Um, so tell, tell us the origin of that. So the origin of the shirt, and, and I got a, a whole bunch of them. I used to have just one. But I went to a school. It was October, seven years ago. And I did a, a presentation with Rick, big school. And this teacher came up to me and said, hey, do you want to go down to our clothes closet? And I've been a lot of those. You know, it's usually some obscure wing. You know, no kid wants to go and wear the clothes that you donated because your family has means and you donated mm-hmm. them last week. And now I got to go see the, 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 the blouse that Heather donated and I'm going to wear that tomorrow. Everybody's going to know it's hers. Like, mm-hmm. the kids don't like that kind of stuff. Yeah. It makes them, you know, anyway. Um, so I, I, I go down to this clothes closet and it was the most unbelievable thing I had seen. It was in the middle of the school, huge. There was round, like open for people to, well, it was in a room, but it was a enormous room and it was in the middle of the school. It wasn't like down some weird wing yep. and a, ba- a bunch of clothes and bags on the floor. There were these round turnstiles of clothes. There were kids in there with bags shopping there were clothes up on the wall. Like it was just, I, I was like, I was like. Like a consignment shop? It, it, it looked like a department store. Wow, okay. And I turned to the lady that brought me down. I'm like, this is incredible. Like I've never seen anything like this. And I've, I've been to dozens of these. And she's like, oh, that lady over there started it. And she was just putting clothes on a rack and she had a blue blouse thing on. And, and then the lady turns to me and she goes, and she wears that outfit every day. I kind of like. I was like, what? You're telling me she wears, she goes home and cha- washes that and, or doesn't wash it and wears it back the next, oh yeah, I got to meet this lady. So I make a beeline for her and I go over and I say, number one, I'm Tom. She goes, I know, I was in the presentation. I was like, well, number one, this is incredible. And I just was going to, like, I'm, I've seen dozens of these and never anything like this. And she goes, thank you. And she was really quiet. And um, I don't know if you took it off the website, but there was a picture of her on the website. I don't even know if you've really realized you put it on there. Yeah, but I think you, you cleaned up. Um, Brian cleans up our website and changes things around, but there was, it used to be a picture of her on there. And, um, and I didn't ask to get it put on there. Someone just put it on there. And um, I said, number two, I said, she told me you wore that outfit. And she just kind of nodded her head a little bit. And I could tell she... She, I could tell she was okay talking about it, but it was like this real sense of humility that just fell off of her. And I said, well, tell me about it. And she goes, well, um, this whole place started a, a year or two ago or whatever it was a year ago. And I met a young man that only owned one pair of clothes. And out of solidarity, I just decided I was going to wear, pick out, I let my students pick out an outfit and I just wore it every single day so he wouldn't be alone. Wow. And I started this because of it. And I got like chills and I was like, holy cow, like that's gutsy. We can all talk about jumping into action. We can all talk about making a change or making a difference. I mean, it was Tolstoy that said, everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to change themselves. 
And she just made this massive change in the blink of an eye for a young person that was hopeless. And um, it was in October. And I don't know why I made the shirt. I made the shirt. The back of it is kind of weird. Um, I like the brain sciencey stuff. And it says squeeze for oxytocin. And I think I made it because I like to just, get, I like to say things that are like, people are like, oh my God, did you just say that out loud? And then I have reasons for why I say it. And they're like, oh, now I get it. Like years ago, I used to say, in giant auditoriums, teachers, kids don't need you to learn anymore. And I realized that was a giant attack on teachers, but it was just the truth. I mean, they don't really need you to learn anything. They'll go home and watch some dude on YouTube do the same equation if they want to, and then they'll come back the next day and be like, I told you I knew how to do it, mm -hmm. right? But so I liked the back of the shirt. I came up with it so people would say, squeeze for Oxycontin. No, man, oxytocin. It's the chemical that your brain makes when you bond with other humans. And there's nothing really associated bad with it. Like, even though there's nothing wrong with dopamine, it still gets kind of a bad rap, mm -hmm. right? And and so I just, I wore the shirt, um, made it. And then January came and I was still thinking about this lady. And I'm like, I'm going to wear this shirt for 30 days. And so all January, I wore the shirt every day. And I own a restaurant in Vermont. Okay. And pretty big place, like 70 employees. And um, I did. I just, um, anyway. Um, but I would go home. I, I leave on Sundays. And I come home on Friday nights. 200 days a year. Right? And um, I would come home, park my car outside. Don't even go into my house because I live next door. And I go right in the restaurant on Fridays when I get home at 7 o'clock, sometimes 8 o'clock. Say I just love talking to the community. Saturday, all day in the restaurant. Sunday morning, lunchtime in the restaurant. And then I get in my car and I leave. As long as I can make somewhere within seven hours. And January ended. Took the shirt off. Went back to my other shirts. Every time I went in the restaurant, people were like, Where's the shirt? I'm like, the shirt? The free hug shirt. Where's the shirt? Why aren't you wearing the shirt? And so all of February, people said that to me. March hit. I donated all my shirts. I made about 20 of these. And I've been wearing it every day for seven years since. Wow. The world just needs more of it, man. Kind of awkward and goofy. But um, I don't know what else to do now. Like I can't, and I'm a streak guy. I can't break my streak, so I like streaks. Sports superstition? No, I just haven't said a curse word in 20 years. Wow! And I just keep streaks alive, and uh, um, so I, I I don't know how to break the streak, and I don't know if I should. So I'm waiting for maybe the. I go to funerals. I've been to a couple funerals. And you wear that free hug shirt. I went to Rick's wedding. He was so ticked at me. Because I show up at his wedding with a free hug shirt on. Brian's wedding, I show up with a free hug shirt on. Really? Yeah, funerals are weird. But people might need hug at a funeral, right? So, but legitimately, this is the only... Only shirt I wear. Yeah. Like, even like formal wear, weird things like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I have a pink suit jacket I'll wear over it sometimes. That's wild. Yeah. So, actually, a question on, on that with the idea of like... You know, what's really hard is no matter where you are, airports, mm -hmm. 
South Central Los Angeles. Doesn't matter who the person is. When they come up to give you a hug, you can't say no. I was going to say, how many hugs have you gotten? Oh, sure. I can't even count them. Hundreds of thousands? Uh, easy, yeah. Um, I had a girl today, this morning. Walked into school. Saw her yesterday. And uh, I don't know if you saw it, Brian, but right in the doorway of the room at 7.15 this morning. She had tears in her eyes. And uh, I don't really know her. And she came right up to me. Can I have a hug, please? And her boyfriend dumped her last night. And she's, you know, a kid struggling. Mm -hmm. And she had uh, crazy eye makeup on and ripped jeans. You know, she's struggling with a heck of a lot more than just her boyfriend breaking up with her. Yeah. That was just the thing. And when you look at these destructive decisions kids make, and especially the ultimate, it's never one thing. It's bullying doesn't cause you to hurt yourself or someone else. It's a, it's like I told you before, it's that the holes have to line up. And I'm not saying she's close to that. I'm saying that there's more going on in that young lady's life than just getting dumped. And she just needed someone to recognize that she was struggling today. It was the first, that's how my morning started. It's like this one right here. I just, I haven't even talked about this yet to anybody really. Um, few people personally, but I got that one. Like a change purse? No. Wallet? I got this one right here. Oh, just the hairband. You know where I got this? <laughs> At your school. Can you tell the story behind it? A little bit. Okay. Um, she lost someone very special in her life. And um, I don't want to say too much in case someone locally hears. Mm -hmm. um, the wrong way. And she... Um, um, after she lost this really special person who was an elder in her life that kind of did the unthinkable, she was um, ruined. And um, she remembered that they were baking together a week before. And this woman didn't have a rubber band for the bag of sugar. So this woman took this hair tie off and put it on the bag of sugar to seal it. Mm. And then she did the unthinkable. And this young teenage girl remembered that, went back to the bag of sugar, has been wearing this on her wrist for the last year, or however long. And after we connected, she took it off and gave it to me. And I begged her at school. I said, I don't, you got to keep that. And she said, no, I need you to have it. So you can talk about her and keep her alive. So... Mm. Tough stuff, man. Yeah. Tough. Um, oh, yeah. Um, your, your school. Yeah. Your backyard. The halls you walked. Well, I think, uh, you know, like, and again, we, we were like a small, very small school. I remember um, when I was, I think, sixth grade, I think it was 12, I remember there was a senior committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Um didn't Sorry honestly, huh? Sorry about that. Yeah, I, but you know, it's it's crazy because um, didn't know him, like knew of him, sure. knew his kind of younger siblings. Um, never spoken to, never spoke to him. Never like, but I, I just like I, it's kind of a vivid memory. I, I remember seeing a senior girl just in the hallway break down in tears, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm getting kind of choked up thinking about it now. But like, didn't really have a connection. But I think. Our school was such a small school that like it it's a family, was like, man. Yeah, and we had um, this this one kind of still bothers me. We had 
Um, so I, I coached, man, it'd be tough, but I had a, um, I coached soccer for a handful of years, um, at the school. And, uh, we had my first year that I was teaching or not teaching first year I was coaching. Um, and I, I was assistant and we ended up, uh, winning the state championship, which was, you know, great. And we've had good success, you know, with soccer and, uh, two weeks, three weeks later, one of the boys, um, Um, so one of the boys gets in the car accident and, you know, an accident, but, what was, uh, it, what was his first name? Um, uh, Frankie, Frankie and I, anybody in Chasey, um, that's all right, man. Yeah. Um, can I tell you something about that? Yeah. Not about that situation, but those feelings, you know, I used to, I used to hide my feelings all the time. And, um, that's one of the great problems with our generation and, this is you know you got to look as good as you can and you're not supposed to show those things but i tell kids all the time it takes a tremendous amount of courage um and to show those feelings and to to be okay with it and you know you're when your family's in a big battle in war (laughs) i'm talking about ancient times and not a great time to sit down for a good cry and to show those emotions, mm-hmm. got to get in the battle. And but afterwards, you know, your grandma was a casualty. Probably okay to show those feelings because it means you care. I tell kids all the time, you know, if your dog dies, it'd be kind of weird if you were like, "Eh, I didn't need that thing anyway." No, you do. You need to. You need to feel those things. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the great problems with our society today is the unwillingness to show vulnerability. It destroys empathy. It's one of the great empathy killers is, um, and you know, you're a powerful person because you have the, you know, you didn't have to tell that story. I'm proud of you for, for sharing that with me. And, um, I'm sorry you had to go through that, but, um, anyway, I just wanted yeah. to tell you how proud I was of you. Of yeah. Not, not hiding that. Yeah. I, I just, well, I think it goes back to kind of the, the hair tie, just, uh, you know, sh- like Chasey means a lot, you know. I think people that go there. It's a very small school, but you know, when something and I was I was at a school at the time. I was coaching, but you know, a couple of weeks prior, and this is a kid that's me loved by the players, and um, you know, just you know, you know his family, and it's just it's it's one of those you know things that feels as real today as it does back then. But um, I think it goes back to you know just the closest. But I think it. I think you even talked about kind of. Um, come in full circle is the idea of like the girl needing a hug or you know the student sitting in a circle or anything like that it's the idea of like we're social connected creatures you know we need that you need you can't be isolated you can't you know I think one of the worst things people really looked at it is to just go be by yourself forever I mean you need social interaction you don't, you don't have to be in a group of hundreds but right. you know you need friends you need conversation you need connection you need acceptance you need um, a place to feel you know as one um, and I think that's kind of where that all comes from, you know, and in different stages now, I'm, you know, now I'm a parent. So like my, a lot of my thoughts revolve around four people in my life, you know, my wife and my three kids and like that's, but that's also a different, um, connectivity and, you know, things just kind of, you know, grow. And I'm sure as life goes on, I'll hit different stages of, of, you know, life of that where things become important and people come and go out of your life. But it's like, you know, I think, um, what about the yeah. kids that have nothing? 
Mm-hmm. Well, and that's that's and, and the thing is like I at least that young man at a hand. I mean, you said he was so loved. What about those kids that don't? Yeah, and I, I and kind and of going who, back and who to come the, to school feeling invisible, right? Well, even the the first and again the the kid um, that like I said when I was younger, you know, committed suicide. I I don't know him. You know, I mean, I, I didn't know. I was too. I was young. I wasn't. Um, you know, there was quite a bit of an age gap where, like, you knew of a small school, like you knew of the kid, um, but I don't know how he was. He could have been an invisible kid for most most of the people in school. Maybe. Um, you know, and the kid that got in the car accident it certainly wasn't. I mean, yeah. you know, just you know, big personality, big heart. Um, but you know, I yeah, I couldn't even think. You know, and that's. But that other kid is just as important, and I'm not yeah. talking about mm-hmm. the senior. I'm talking about the kid that's invisible. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. take it mm-hmm. back to the beginning of our conversation to. To Alan in the book, you know, to the real Evan, mm-hmm. you know, he just felt like he was invisible and didn't matter, you know. This kid Dan, you know, he was a middle schooler and, you know, he brought a knife to school. And it's what everybody was waiting for so they could throw him out, right? And, um, you know, my friend, when the emails went around amongst the teachers, I knew he was going to do this. Mm. And my friend's response was, if I were Dan, I might have brought a, brought a knife to school too. But nobody knew, you know. Dan was sleeping on his dad's girlfriend's trailer's couch. Two middle school girls that were her kids, ruining his life. Mm-hmm. Dan literally told this guy, "My dad said when I'm 18, I'm out of there. I can't stay there anymore." Now the school doesn't even want him. So what did Dan do? Took his own life, right? And you you, you think about all of those kids, and and that's the natural outworking of hopelessness. And the scary thing is. Um, uh, I don't know. This is the way it popped into my head. You hope it's suicide. And I say that and I pause on purpose because, I mean, I don't want that for any kid, but, mm-hmm. and I don't want to clip that. Um, but what happens when it turns to homicide? Yeah. You don't think some of those kids are about as hopeless as they come? Mm-hmm. You know, when I, um, yeah, I just so I could rattle off story after story. And I was going to start another story, but. You know, it's just, I was, I'll just, I'll just tell you partial, partially of this one. I had a principal friend of mine, years ago, I went and kid brought his gun to school and uh, in New York, and I couldn't wait to get to this guy's school. The next day I got there and this'll, this'll ring this very- the day after? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this'll ring true to what happened yesterday. Um, I know you won't play this, but you know, this is the, the, the Tennessee issue, um, my, I went there and I, I said to my buddy, I said, um, I got there real early and I'm like, his name is Dave. And uh, I said, Dave, I said, he's a middle school principal. I love the guy, very well respected. I said, bro, did you hear what happened? Because it was up the road from their school. And he kind of like looked to the floor a little bit. It was the, I saw something on his face. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh yeah. And I said, well, dude, tell me about it. And he's like, well, my son is a junior there. And he looked down at the ground again. I said, what? I'm like, what does your son say? And he said, honestly, Tom, my son said he's a scumbag. And his son's a good boy. Like he's, I, I've, I met his son before. He's a good kid. Mm-hmm. But that's what everyone sees this kid as. Then this principal did the most unbelievable thing. He pulls out his phone and he pulls up a video from Instagram or something. And he hands me his phone. I wish I had it today. This kid brandishing the gun, saying, if you don't leave my transgender friend alone, you're all in trouble. What was the kid guilty of? Maybe the greatest 
you know, of all the um, virtues, love. He just cared about somebody else that everybody else was trying to ruin. And now the gun was an, an operative, inoperative, and, you know, nothing happened. They, they caught it. and um, But like, what was this immature brain? You know, he just cared about this other kid. And he didn't know how to handle it. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do the right thing. I'm not justifying it at all. But like, what was he? What was he guilty of? Loving someone else, caring about somebody, and nobody was listening. And you don't think he had been talking about that? And but he found himself in a hopeless situation, and he wasn't even the kid that was getting ruined. It was his buddy. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a scary world out there, man. And so when I say you hope it's suicide, I, I don't hope anybody. You know, it's um, it, it's like um, Brave New World, right? I don't know if you've ever read it. It's one of my favorites. And it's um, Huxley had it right. You know, Orwell said we would be ruled by fear in the future. And, you know, whether you're a vaxxer, non-vaxxer, whatever, mm-hmm. we all felt a certain amount of fear. And fear just rules everything, right? But in Brave New World, Huxley said that we would be dominated by pleasure. And that's what the whole book is about. It's about, you know, unabashed pleasure that um, it was... Um, uh, was it Chesterton that said meaninglessness does not come from the exhaustion of pain meaninglessness comes from the exhaustion of pleasure and we have exhausted pleasure in young people there's no place to turn everything under the sun wonder and pleasure has just been annihilated with young people You, you and, and when you look at that book I mean that's what our kids are just they, they cannot find meaning in, in life anymore because they thought it was about pleasure, but it, it really wasn't. And what happens at the end of the book? You know, John takes his own life. This was written in the 1930s. He couldn't find any meaning in life because in Brave New World, it's just about they all take this drug called Soma, which is really interesting because you can say, well, that's the THC movement of today. If you got an issue, you know, take this pill, whether it's, you know, THC or another pill. But that the whole world, every time you feel anxious in Brave New World, you should read the book. It's fascinating. Um, you I just pop some nice. Soma, right? But the, my, my point is, um, that's the world that we've created for our young people. It's just full of pleasure. And there's no escape from it w- for them, right? Yeah, Brave New World. Is that which one? Yeah, uh, that one right there, Aldous Huxley. Yeah. But there's just there's no escape and we thought it was going to be making them happy and filling their lives with all of this great stuff and but it gives no pleasure and by the end of the book john has to take his own life because he can't find any meaning in the world of pleasure and that's what the book is about and i i worry that some people think it's just the challenges that our young people face you know it's the hurdles and the difficulties it's sleeping on the couch it's you know okay maybe but i think it's a little bit more than that so I don't want to get too deep and philosophical because I can, yeah. my brain can wander like that. And but I think about that kind of stuff because I see our kids battling, you know, this, this you know, the stream of dopamine that never ever will be filled. Well, last question. Um, Sorry about that. No. No. I well, I got one one question before I ask you my last question. You wrote down you're the world champ at the ABCs? Yeah, ZYX, WBUTSRQPO, and MLKJCFEDCBA. That's backwards in maybe <laughs> 2.3 seconds. Is that a legitimate work record? Um, <laughs> I, so You wrote it down. I'm like, this guy's either a good, like, I, that's impressive. I can do it faster. 
No, I, I trust you. I trust you. So no, no. So just so listen. I was just talking about some tough stuff, but what I really like to say to educators, when you deal with young people, unfortunately, you have to entertain them, which which is bridging off of what I just said about pleasure. But you got to entertain young people today. It's very it's it's unfortunate. Is it human uh, humor's nat- uh, nature's medicine? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. so when I do the presentation for older kids, it's different. We we go K twelve. We do a, a K two, a three five, middle school, high school assembly. Um, and there's a lot more we do. We have a we have curriculum up the wazoo, whatever that means. Um, we at, at, at Peru we run a class all year long, so we've got this dialed in. But when I started presenting to um, elementary kids, my buddy Rick is really scary. No ears, no nose, one leg. Looks a bit like a monster. So we got to make it entertaining for kids before we bring him in, right? Just to make them this sense of security. And um, so I did develop a shtick. And, you know, high schoolers, I can play a minute of mixed martial arts and they're like, I'll believe anything that guy says. I love him. (laughs) But little kids, you've got to have fun because taking fun out of education is called what? Joy. Abuse. Oh, taking fun out, yes. It's called abuse. It's like, here, here's an amazing piece of science. This will blow your mind with your own children. They say it takes, Texas Christian University did this. It takes about 400 repetitions to create a synapse in the human brain. So, you know, you got to do something about 400 times to really develop this pattern, you know. When you interject fun and play, you can reduce the same synaptic growth to less than 15 repetitions. 400 to 15. So anything you do with your kid, you got to make it fun and enjoyable. That's one of the great ways the brain codes. So anyway, so Mr. Incredible is my guy. And I meant to ask you this is the first thing I usually ask people in the grocery store, the server that you know brings me my food. I was dying to ask her. I just didn't get a chance. Who's your favorite superhero? Spider-Man. Why? Um... Oh, I mean, it, definitely. That was the one I just grew up watching as a kid. And um, I don't know. I think just the cartoons, the maybe it's the outfit, maybe it's the web sw- uh, swinging. And I, I feel like I liked the fact that he was a little bit more agile than all the other ones. You know what I mean? Like most of them were kind of like, you know, Superman, Batman. They're all kind of like big, strong dude, flies and hits people. And I'm like, Spider-Man kind of jumped. He swung, did webs, climbed. I, I think that's what I liked as a kid. And I think as a, it's funny because as... I've now had kids. They, especially the boys, love Spider-Man, which is like warms my heart because that was always my my guy. I, I was waiting for you to tie it to emotion, and you just did. Yeah, because you circle back around with your own kids, and now yeah. you have this deep connection. It's the number one superhero that young people pick because he's a kid. He's easy to relate to. Yeah, uh, but usually someone will tie it to. I watched that with my dad, or. But you just tied it to your kids, and that's, yeah. to me, why you answered so quickly. Yeah. But anyway, it's one of the oldest, greatest questions on planet Earth because it's one of the great archetypes that Carl Jung talked about. And you know, um, But it's where we get our virtues from. Heroes are privileged, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to balance privilege, you need virtue, or we would become monsters, and we would take what we want with our powers. But you, know, you, you, you balance it with some virtue. And um, where was I going with this uh, before I derailed myself? I was talking about Mr. Incredible. Oh, oh, I got ABC. Boom, I'm back. I do that to myself all the time. That's why I bring Brian Brian with me everywhere. I like that. Brian can read my mind. 
So that's good. <laughs> well, he can. And when I wrote the when, when so he's he was, a superhero too. Oh, dude. Well, what Teleco- was no, it? No, telekinesis. No, 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 no. Or? He gave himself his own title. <laughs> What's oh. the acronym? Well, it's, the acronym. It's, Just say the acronym. The ATTS. Yeah, that's he's the ATTS. Well, the office. Uh, White shoot, assistant to the regional manager. Love it. My favorite show of all time. I'm assistant to the superheroes. <laughs> yeah. assistant I knew I like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> that, so, that is my favorite show of all time. Yeah, but anyway. my office. So <laughs> the ABCs, to get back to it, um, I tear my, I, I stutter around when I come out with little kids. I'm like, um, good morning, um, uh, boys and girls. Um, it's uh, it's proper that when you meet someone um, uh, for the and I stutter and teachers are like is 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 he okay, and then I turn I, I slowly start turning my back and I say it's proper to introduce yourself and you can call me Mr. Tom or Mr. Murphy but I would appreciate if you'd call me and I rip my shirt open and I have my Mr. Incredible shirt on you call me Mr. and the kids like incredible and I'm like you can do better than that incredible and then they just scream it and yeah. then after I do that. I show a picture for third through fifth grade of me in a ring, just with my hands up. And and I say that, you know, I like sports and, you know, I'm a champion because how I treat other people, blah, blah, blah. But then I say, but since uh, I like sports so much, I didn't get a chance yet to work out. And I start stretching a little bit. And I want to see who the fastest kid in the room is. And Can't shoot up. Yeah, it goes crazy. Mm-hmm. And finally, I pick two kids, usually a boy and a girl, mm-hmm. whatever, or different grade levels, and I bring them up front. And then I look at my shoes, and I got my fancy shoes on. I'm like, oh, oh, wait, shoot, darn it. I forgot my running shoes. And, uh, oh, I got a better idea. How about um, how about we see who can say the ABC's faster since we're in school? And then the kids are like, Wah. and usually it's two athletic kids, right? And yeah. everybody wants them. So, And I'm like, He's not buying it. I got it. I'm gonna grab my iPhone. I'll time myself, and uh, if you can say I'm faster than me, I'll give you that. And I flip open my wallet, and and, and there's a hundred dollar bill, yeah. and and the kids are like, <gasps> and they go crazy, and and the crowd doesn't know yet, and I'm like, you do it. I'll time myself. Then you go, and then we're gonna give her a try. If she can do it faster than both of us, she gets the hundred dollar bill, and the place goes berserk. And then I'm like, okay, calm down. And they're going wild. And the teachers are like, oh, my God, this is a disaster. So I, and I say, okay, there's a couple rules here. Number one, um, it's got to be articulate. Do you know what that means? No. They got to be able to understand each letter. You can't go blah, 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 blah. Okay. Number two, um, it's got to be in English. No funny business. You agree? You got, you no, no, I need a verbal. Come on. Yeah. Okay. So you'll say them the same way I say them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the same way. Okay, you heard them, teachers. They said they say them the same way that I say them. And then I get in front and I, I go like this. Everybody starts laughing because I'm like moving my lips. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. A champion always got to warm up first. I'm like, okay, here we go. And then I go, ZUX, WVTS, And everybody's like, what? And then I'm like, 2.3. Backwards, and I throw a nice dab in there, and uh, and the and the no no no. I you said you would say them the same way I say them, and uh, <laughs> didn't they say that, teachers? And uh, <laughs> then I hand them the mic, and they can't do it, and I'm yeah. like, okay, let me slow it down, and I say it one more time in about six seconds backwards, and then I say, and then I whisper, you don't worry, I'm going to help you, and I turn my back and I I help them through it, but it's a disaster, 
It's like 19 seconds. Then I let the other person do it. And then afterwards, I'm going to get to my point here. I'm at the end. I'm like, <laughs> you asked. Like, you just can't say the. So, and, and I'm like, I'm like, um, uh, I'm like, oh, it's obvious that I'm way too much of an ABC <clears throat> champion for these two. So, how about we just do it the regular way? A to Z. No money this time, but we'll do it for bragging rights and we'll see who can say it faster. The boys or the. You got to be careful with that one today. Mm-hmm. But n- normally now I say the fourth grade or the fifth grade. Anyway, and they're like, yeah. And then I say, well, since I'm a champion, I also like challenges as well. So uh, and I walk over to my backpack and I pull out two baggies of marshmallows. And, and I'm like, okay. And I hand her one, hand him one. There's six marshmallows in there. I say, take two of those and chipmunk up. Huh? You know, and they put them in their cheeks and they look silly. And we do round number one and somebody wins. And, and then... And then I go to the, I, I, that was the warm-up run. Now, round number two, and I make the young man usually do two more. Now he's got four marshmallows in his cheeks. And I go to her, I go, just take one. <laughs> and uh, it's a disaster. Remember, it's got to be articulate. And there's marshmallows coming out, and they're drooling, and everybody's laughing and having a good time. But, our, but after it's over, and she becomes the marshmallow queen, because girls rule and boys Drool. Drool, right? Classic. And, yeah. And uh, then they go sit down. She's the marshmallow queen. And and then I come back to the ABCs at the end. And one of our action plans, you know, superheroes, they jump into action. And it's easy, easy as the ABCs. And I went to superhero school. This is like 40 minutes later. And, uh, and, and I'll give you the first one. And I learned this from the movies. What's the first thing a hero does when someone's in danger? The first thing. Puts their costume well, they fly in and take the person. Oh, to safety? Well, it starts with an A. Come on. And takes the person. Away? Away. Oh. Okay. Right? And that is a real superpower. It's from the starter pack of superpowers. Right? So now think about this. No one taught you this. But when you saw someone being treated the wrong way, why couldn't you walk up to them and, and uh, not talk to the people that were being a jerk and just say, hey, man, could you show me where the principal's at? And just take the person away hey could you help me put these balls in the field coach asked me to now we developed something called a bully drill right it's like a fire drill you practice fire drills for life-saving purposes mm-hmm. well we have a generation of young people that feel like they're on fire on the inside socially psychologically emotionally and when you walk up to most kids and you say what do you do when you see someone in struggling they say um tell a teacher which they're not going to do but if they practice these skills, like every other great skill in education, I could talk to you for the next hour about things you don't practice with your children. You'll tell your kids all the time to say sorry. Horrible thing to do to a young person. Say you're sorry to your brother. Don't ever do that to your kid. You want them to be able to apologize? They got to see you say sorry. That's a hard thing for a dad to do. So all of these other great skills, you can talk about them. And that's, we didn't get into circle. But circle is about practicing some of these great skills, like just listening. We tell kids to listen all the time, but they never practice listening. You just force them to. Would you listen, buddy? How come you can't listen? We berate them for not listening. So anyway, that's kind of into the marshmallow thing and the ABCs. And, but I just make it fun. Yeah. Because you got to make it fun for kids or they don't want to do it. Wait a minute. Neither do you. Yeah. I was going to say, you listen to a monotone uh, presenter in anything, mm-hmm. or a power, I'm going off the PowerPoint, so like, you lost me right yeah. from the start. 
Yeah, energy, absolutely. Jokes, just, you know, kind of tonation. Yeah, absolutely. That's the ABCs. I love it. But but here's one of my real superpowers. I can teach any human the ABCs backwards in under five minutes. Any human. Everybody says, no, you can't. Rick said it. I talked I talk in between exits. Did I ever teach it to you? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's cool. I, no, I, I, that's that's great. Um, <laughs> you so asked. I, I didn't I, I, well, that, that, force yes. my way in on that well, one. Well, I was, I was like going through and you guys, like I, I watched the videos and I had some good things here and I was like, I was like, I can't ever ask them about the ABC. Yeah, that's a good, so, no one's ever asked me that. That's, that's, a, that's well, original. hidden talents, yeah. Um, really so, nice so, uh, the last, okay. The actual last thing we're going to leave with for, for both of you, um, is what is your starting now going forward? And it could be the same, but what's your goal with like, what's your, I don't say the why, but like why goal, like what, what do you hope to accomplish with everything that you've done, continue to do, you know, what's your thing kind of driving you forward, having, you know, the passion behind this for both of you, you know, obviously as a presenter and organizer and director of all this and Heather as you know now a teacher and kind of implementing it within the school system what do each of you hope to change and what would be the ultimate win if this was or what something were to happen I I want every student to leave my classroom feeling worthy hmm. I think there are so many who don't and if if you feel worthy I, you can do so much in this world, just knowing you're enough, that's and powerful. that you count and you matter. And you matter. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. Hmm. Worthy. Yeah. Well, I didn't really, you know, I told you how this started, and I usually tell kids they say, "Why do you do this?" And you know, I usually have three reasons. Um, I, I won't go into those; it's a little bit longer. Um, you know, my goal. You have 50 million public school students in this country, and I know what the answer is because I've seen it with my own eyes. It's just more sweethearts and heroes, people that are willing to give hope to the hopeless and people that are willing to take action to alleviate the challenges or the suffering that that individual is going through. I believe in the individual. Um, I, you know, Mother Teresa said, you know, so, so I'm in this real weird juxtaposition because, you know, I want 50 million public school students to hear this message. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, Mother Teresa said, never worry about the numbers, just help the person next to you and you've changed the world because you've changed their world. And I kind of steal this from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago. And he said, the universe has as many centers as there are human beings. And you're the center of the universe. I may just be made up in the matrix in your mind. Heather might be. The people over in Japan might just be a figment of your imagination or something that you constructed. It's kind of wild to think about. And you're like, no, no, they're real. They're real when you go over there, sure. And you construct them as real. (laughs) You're the center of the universe. When it's over, the universe is gone. The lights go out. You know, whether there's something beyond this, I don't know. I have no clue. But there's no universe outside of your reality. I would challenge anyone to say, like, Brian's sitting over there in the corner, and he is the center of the universe. All of this stuff he just made up and constructed in his head. You know, (laughs) it's crazy to think about. And so is every kid, especially the ones that are suffering the most. They're the center of the universe. And so for me... 
I can talk about helping 50 million kids, but the goal is just to help this one that gave me this hair tie and maybe give her a little bit of hope. That kid that posted that message that I read, you know, like, I don't know, man, that's, I have four kids. I can't imagine them going through half of the things that I've ever heard, like not even a quarter, not even a slice of it. You don't ever want your kids to have to go through some of those things that I've heard, you know, the... The sexual assault that, you know, a girl in Brockport, New York, took me in a stairwell and talked about, you know, her assault. And a girl in uh, East Syracuse, Manoa, you know, I'll never forget her. And, you know, she's in eighth grade and she was assaulted so bad the guy's in jail for the rest of his life. Her dad's best friend. She's got to live with that forever. I can't imagine my kids going through that. And, you know, it's, I, I say, you know, one of the big themes that we have is about jumping into action. You know, and it's a formula. Peers intervene less than 10% of the time, but when a hero jumps into action within the first 10 seconds, they can be successful almost 60% of the time. And how dare I tell pe young people to jump into action if I'm not willing to do it myself, right? And so that's why, you know, I do what I do. And, you know, it's tough being away from home. I have a tremendous amount of guilt in my heart because the last... 12 or 13 years when I should have been raising my kids, I was out helping other kids. And I don't know what to do with that. I've been wrestling with that one for a long time. My kids are great. And there are no real issues that I know of. You know, they seem to have assimilated well. But I don't know. Um, those are my brothers and sisters growing up. Those people that just, you know. And most of them aren't around anymore. You know, Bobby Cummings fell out of a tree and broke his neck and died trying to rob a house to feed his addiction, his hopelessness. He was one of my mom's favorites, you know. Uh, it's, she had a painting that he, he was a wonderful artist, but he just couldn't beat it, man. And uh, maybe we'll save one of those people. Or maybe like that guy in Tennessee or Nicholas Cruz will stop one of them from doing something monstrous, right? I don't know. Yeah. I don't mean to get morose and, you know, Debbie Downer here or Donnie Downer or whatever. Um I don't know. That's that's my goal, and I don't know where it's going. I don't know how long I'm going to wear the shirt, and I've no, no don't know how long I'm going to do this. I just know the world needs it because we're not doing too good as a species right now. Yeah. So anyway, well, we just hit three hours. We're gonna we'll that's wrap awesome. it up. We'll wrap it's the it up. Podcast <laughs> it's not three forty was actually the longest. Keep going, bro. Ride. We're gonna beat this. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we can. There's there's no, a lot no, of stuff no, we no, can unpack here. Uh, yeah, we didn't even scratch the surface, man. Well, I, that's what I was, uh, I think, kind of getting at or kind of thinking in my head is that there's a lot more layers to unpack. I think um, if people want to, I guess, look up more, we'll put. I'll try to put some uh, some things in the uh, the notes and stuff on um, on social. But um, you guys sent me some videos, and obviously, there's a lot on you know the social yeah. media aspect and Facebook, but. Um, if people want to know more about, uh, you know, Sweethearts and Heroes, if they want to know more about the, um, I'm going to call it the pillow book. Um, is that, that okay? I'm yeah, it the yeah, pillow yeah. book. Mm -hmm. Thir 13 Pillows, is that the official the official one? Yeah. Um, 13 Pillows. Um, I know there's a couple different pages, but if you kind of can lead people to that and kind of give them a plug. And uh, I guess if people want to listen to you guys, slash possibly if they're in a position, you know, Heather, similar to bring you know, your message into the school system, how can they do so? Well, um, um, the kids ask me that all the time. Where did you get that? And I'm like, this magic place called 
the internet. <laughs> Just sweetheartsandheroes.com. Um, info at sweetheartsandheroes if you want to send us a note, uh, social media. you'll f- They'll find us, especially if it's somebody that young people find us. Can they say, hey, Brian? Hey, Brian. Yeah. Makes it more personal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just say that's the best way to, to reach out to us. And I try and get back to 100% of people. It's hard sometimes. My, you know, I work seven days. You know, I was reflecting as you were talking about taking those breaks. And I had some stuff to say about that. Um, but I've been at this for seven days a week for you know the last 10 years of my life or so, especially since 2014. Um, yeah, so... I need I need some more time. I'm supposed to take time off, but I just don't think like that. I just think I, I just love doing it, and but I try and get back to everybody is my point. So, yeah, I, you know, the best and I I, I love talking to educators. If there's any educator out there who wants to reach out, I would love to hear your story and just know that you're not you're not alone in all of this. I would love that. Yeah. Well, I think like I said, adult adults need need uh, good peer pressure too, just mm-hmm. as much as kids. So, mm-hmm. like I said, if you can nudge them in the right direction, yeah. but. Um, well, guys, I, I appreciate yeah, you man. both coming on. This was, uh, it's nice to kind of pull it back and kind of see all the, you know, the free hug shirts and stuff I see online, but to see kind of the message behind it. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you guys came and visited and everything that you guys continue to do. And, um, you know, I've, I've only heard great things about the organization. Like I've never heard anybody like say anything bad about it and every, anything I've ever seen is just people raving about it. So, um, I can only imagine what an actual presentation looks like or sounds like in person. Um, and Brian, you are the best camera person we've ever had here. So you've set the bar. We're gonna hopefully uh, we'll see if someone ever could beat it. But you did a great job. So um, we're gonna end there. That's episode two twenty five of the Galen Trombley Show. We're out. Thank you for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.